This podcast is brought to you on Roku and Fire TV by Pod Nation Podcast TV. Find us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever podcasts are broadcast. Download our app and never miss a show with video on demand as well as exclusive content found only on Pod Nation TV. Fine, fine. And hello, Kaiju Lovers in the future. Yes. <laughs> For those who perhaps don't know, I am Nathan March, and that this isn't the part you that you don't know. You know this part already. I am Nate March, and the host and curator of the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment to Tokusatsu. And yes, you just heard my intrepid producer, Jimmy from NASA. Anyway, the shtick is now complete. What I am doing, even though we are normally a movie and film podcast, we have dabbled in television here and there. And this one is just too big to ignore, that being Monarch Legacy of Monsters on Apple+. Plus. What I am about to endeavor in doing, this is something that's a little bit different than what I've done before. I am going to do, hopefully, shorter episodes, solo episodes with Jimmy on each episode of the show as it comes out that will be released to MIFV Max members on Patreon, which, in case you didn't know, for those who are listening to this in the future, 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 you can join for as little as $3 a month and get early access and bonus content like this. So anyway, I plant my... My plan, I can I can articulate, my plan is to do these episodes as they come out for the show on Patreon, and then this will be released as part of one, maybe two, depending on how long they get, supercuts on the podcast feed so that you can, once the show is done, so that you can get the full coverage. Regardless... Let's get into our first episode, because I am fresh off of seeing it in the KIJU screening room. My laptop went dark there for a second. My apologies. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, I am a professional. Quit calling it into question. All right, all right. So here we go. So we had episode one, Aftermath. This I have to say, as someone who's watched a f his fair share of streaming series, particularly streaming series that are part of the purview of my podcast and my line of work, I have to say this was some of the the best that I have seen of in terms of a first episode. There are there's plenty of intrigue. The characters are introduced nicely. There's some gr deftly handled exposition. It's never boring. 
and which is especially astonishing given that there actually isn't all that much monster action in this. It's really only a couple of scenes, and even then, it's pretty quick. But the characters and these actors, this cast, they really, really carry it. I can't emphasize that enough. I have was just blown away by what I saw here. I had what annoys me is that. I think the sh these first two episodes were released early. I had always been under the impression that the show was being released on November 17th, which is what today is. However, these dropped yesterday, the 16th, which is my real sister's birthday. Take that, Jess. <laughs> yes, I get it. I'm a jerk. Anyway... Anyway, so I've already heard some people talking about it, and I was hearing just an overwhelming amount of positivity. My friend Drew over at the Cellcast even said that this was some of the best TV that he had seen in a long time. And I have to say, this is, at least right now, this is currently free of a lot of the pacing problems that streaming services, uh, that streaming series tend to have. They're either stupid slow to pad it out or they're freakishly fast to cram things in and this is the first time that i have seen an apple plus series even though they've had one or two that i've been intrigued to see which is saying something because well like i said the other ones were actually pretty interesting but as a first experience here I got to say, they really seem to know what they're doing compared to the other ones. And I'm surprised that more people don't subscribe to this. Fun fact, I managed to get three months free, three months free of Apple TV Plus just because I have a PS4. It was included. <laughs> I originally thought I was only going to get one week free, and instead I get three months. So congratulations, MIFV Max. I just saved some of your money, so now I don't have to spend it to cover this. I am beyond happy, what can I say? All right, so like I said... You know, the you know, this is the first episode. Just some quick background on this, obviously. You know, this the showrunners that we have here are Chris Black and Matt Fraction. And our cast includes Anna Sawai, Kiersey Clemens, Ren Watabe, Mari Yamamoto, Anders Holm. And John Goodman makes a cameo in this, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Joe Tippett. And then, well, and then I should bring up Eliza Wachowski. And then probably the most interesting one in this, and probably the biggest get for this, other than maybe John Goodman, but I think John Goodman's just getting a cameo, is we have Kurt Russell and his son, Wyatt Russell, who are playing the same character. I saw an interview with them where they said they normally, if they're working together on something, they're playing father and son, but because they are father and son, but here, they're the same character. It's just that one is in the flashbacks going all the way back to the 50s, and one is in the present day, which I think is a really intriguing idea, and I don't know if I've ever seen that done before. So anyway... Anyway, 
We need to actually get into the episode. Well, well, first, I should mention that because of the success of Godzilla vs. Kong, which some people I know are disappointed with that, this got put into production. It seems like it was pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Apple was interested in making this happen, which is why I'm surprised that it's on Apple. We had that awful, 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 awful pseudo-anime Skull Island on Netflix, and then this is here. Although I have my doubts that the Skull Island anime was originally MonsterVerse. So we're splitting all this stuff up. And I would like to reiterate, given what I've seen so far, the MonsterVerse continues to be the only other successful shared cinematic universe out there, at least in the United States, although it is starting to quickly become the only one that is successful. I know, that's a rant for another day. That is a rant for another day. So, it was announced in January 2022. They started filming in June 2022. And, oh no, no, they, 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 it was July 2022. That's what it was. That's what it was. You know, oh, and I should mention our composer, Leopold Ross. All right. All right. And the soundtrack has actually been really good so far, too. This is a different composer than they've had up for any of the movies, I might add. Okay. So, so, like I said, there are the, we got two episodes that are out first. I'm going to go up episode. I'm going to go over episode one. I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> which is titled Aftermath, which is fitting, which is fitting. And what is really nice about this is that we get callbacks to two of the movies. Well, it's really the only two that it can call back to, that being Godzilla 2014 and Kong Skull Island, because this takes place, once we get to the present day portions of it, in 2015, so it's between... Godzilla 2014 and Godzilla King of the Monsters 2019. So it's going to, I'm assuming as we go forward and this is going to be interesting because I'm talking about something when it's not finished, this could end up filling in that five year gap. But, but people were wondering, is Kong going to be in this? Well, actually he is. In fact, technically he's the first monster we see because they use stock footage from Kong Skull Island that just make it look really old and grainy. So Kong gets to have a cameo. It's just footage that we've already seen. However, the first scene is John Goodman as Randa from the Skull Island movie basically doing a 70s-style selfie and doing, I guess, basically a last word, talking to a buddy of his saying that, you know, oh, yeah, you probably don't like me, and if you're seeing this, I'm probably dead, but, you know, you know, title drop legacy, because I'm assuming, judging by how often the word legacy was brought up in the trailers and in the, the little preview piece we had on Godzilla Day, that which, by the way, apparently the San Francisco attack is now called G-Day. That's funny, guys. That you know that that's really funny. There's some great world building in this. I have to say, I've been very impressed. So, so you know, so he's sitting there and he's making this final message, and then he gets attacked by a mother long legs. Because again, this is on Skull Island. We even see some of the soldiers running around, and then he runs to the edge of a beach, 
and thinks he's about to get eaten. He's got a bag with him. And then much, well, this will make more sense actually in a few months when you hear his episode. But then a crab shows up and fights the, a giant crab pops out of the rocks and fights the mother long legs. <laughs> and then they both fall into the ocean and Randa loses his bag, which is becomes the MacGuffin in this episode. And that amuses me because Damon sponsored an episode on a pair of giant crab movies, which, so, so we're getting a little bit of a preview of it here. And as he and I have been talking about that episode and getting things put together, we keep making all kinds of crab jokes. If you're wondering, it's going to be Attack of the Crab Monsters, the Roger Corman movie from the 50s. And it's kind of, sort of, but not really remake Island Claws that almost nobody knows about from the 80s. Anyway, it's his first Patreon pick of the of season four. So I hope you're looking forward to that. I I certainly am. All right. So we have all of that, and it's it's some really nice touch. It it it, it it's some really nice tie-ins, is what I was trying to say. And this Set, sets up how the show is going to operate. Now, some would say it's full of retcons, and they are technically correct, but I would argue these are not retcons in the modern use or understanding we have of them, where it's, oh, here's something new that technically contradicts what came before, but this new thing is now canon, whereas this part back here wasn't. So it's erasing what had happened before. This is a more literal case of a retcon because a retcon is a portmanteau of retroactive and continuity. So we are getting new material. This is something that happened before and something that we had seen, but we just hadn't seen it before. So this flashback takes place during the Skull Island movie. We just didn't see this part of the story. So it makes total sense. And this is the sort of thing that we're going to be seeing going forward. Cause I can tell you from the rest of the episode, they were doing that with some of the other movies. All right. So then you flash, you fast forward to 2013 and the bag gets found by Japanese fishermen in the sea of Japan. That's the only scene we have in that year. And then we jump forward again and we get to 2015 and we're introduced to our first main protagonist played by miss sawai it is kate randa she is a survivor of quote-unquote g-day and that is a huge part of her character she is dealing with a lot of ptsd over that incident yes i know you can relate but for different reasons anyway so <laughs> she was on one, she was in, I should say, one of the buses on the Golden Gate Bridge. That's what I was trying to say. During the events of Godzilla 2014. And I I have to say, <laughs> Jack G-Man Hudgens made a wonderful joke about this where he said that one of the pro the major problems, problems of Legacy of Monsters is that is continuity because when they flash back to Godzilla 2014, you can actually see what happens. 
nice one. Nice one. If you know, you know. Anyway, so that's one of the first little bits of flashback that we get. Uh, we technically, Godzilla does appear kind of around here, but it's just auditory. We just hear him roaring because she lands on, uh, she's in a passenger jet and she lands in Japan. And then a bunch of guys in contamination suits, hazmat suits come in and they're spraying everything and everybody for decontamination and somebody makes a comment about quote-unquote parasites and how this is being done to prevent another san francisco really interesting so we're getting that's the other thing i really appreciate about this this gives consequences to the events of godzilla 2014 these are the bigger consequences the world affecting consequences and we'll see even more as we go through the episode but we also see some smaller ones, more personal ones, with the fact that she's dealing with PTSD right now. So that was intriguing, though. So we're going through. We find out that it's April 1st. Happy birthday to my friend Eric Anderson. <laughs> that is his birthday. 2015. Establishing that we're about a year after the events of Godzilla 2014. All right. So like I said, we see her, hear Godzilla roar. And then we find out. And then... And then and I have to say, this is one of the great things. I don't know exactly how they made the in-universe adjustments here, but one of the things I was glad to see, and I think I talked about this in an M in the MIFV Max episode on Godzilla Day this year, but they filmed on location. This isn't the, co the cheap cop-out of using a green screen. So they're actually filming this in Tokyo, but there's a bunch of in-universe signage in this, having to do with Godzilla. It's an amazing piece of visual world building. And as it, we go on in this, I was starting to get some Pacific Rim vibes with it, and I really got it later on, which I'll explain that in a moment here. But then we have this scene that just, just tickled me, that just tickled me, where the Kate is riding in a Japanese cab, and this cabbie, he's a, he's a chatty cabbie, and he just keeps going on. And this is a wonderful end joke right here. As I, this was the moment I realized we've got some good writing going on here because I wrote down several lines, most of it coming from Wyatt Russell. But I wrote down several lines from this episode that I just thought were gold. So... If anyone needed evidence that there are still good screenwriters in Hollywood, they're working on this show. <laughs> so the cabbie just says, and this is, I just want to say this is a great example of how to have a tertiary character who's memorable enough, well, who's so memorable that you would think he thinks he's the main character. Yeah, but anyway, he says, San Francisco was a hoax. They made it with CGI. Nice job, guys. Nice job. It's It almost breaks the fourth wall. It kind of walks right up to the fourth wall. <laughs> and then we find out that he has a, a podcast, which makes him the second podcaster character to be in the MonsterVerse, along with the black guy from GVK. 
this is great. Anytime now, it's just so funny. Anytime somebody appears on TV or in a movie or whatever, and they're a podcaster, I have immediate affinity with them. Now it's kind of crazy. So I'm assuming he's a wild con- conspiracy theorist, and if he's being unknowingly insensitive because he doesn't think the events of San Francisco actually happened when she experienced them firsthand. Kate did, <laughs> which is funny. I, I bet Bernie that was his name. From uh, the guy, the podcaster from GVK, I bet this cabbie and Bernie probably hang out in the same forums talking about all this wild stuff. That would be a, that would be a great tie-in, I have to say. But doing it here probably would have probably not been the best idea, not the best idea. And then, so we have all of this, and then the interpersonal drama here starts getting cranked up because she is there. Kate is there. Because her father has died and she is putting his final affairs in order. So she gets a bunch of keys on a keychain from his own safe and she's going to his apartment and then discovers that there are still people living in the apartment. She thought it would be empty. And then she gets in there and then she, so it's, it ends up being accidental breaking and entering because she's in there and there's photographs of him and her mother, and her, and all of that, and then finds out that there's a young man and his and his mother living there after they sort everything out because there's a little bit of a language barrier, we think, because the son can, is bilingual and can speak Japanese and English. Mom speaks mostly Japanese and has rudimentary English with a really thick accent, but that's only on occasion. So after they sort all of that out, we find out that basically Kate's dad had two families. There was her mother and her in the United States. And then there was this young man who I'm going to, Kentaro, I believe that is his name, the character's name. Yes, Kentaro played by Ren Watabe. There was Kentaro and his mother in Tokyo. So at this point, she's just trying to grapple. Everybody's just trying to grapple with that concept and the fact that it it gets played for laughs just a tiny bit, but because mom doesn't speak English, she doesn't fully realize the weight of everything that's going on here, which is, like I said, it's a little bit, it's a little bit amusing. And, you know, so we've got all of that going on and all that getting set up and it does end up by the end of the episode, you start to see how it starts tying together with the, you know, with the monster stuff that's going on. Because then we get our first flashback. Now, here's the thing that I have to say. Well, I guess it's, I don't know if it's technically the first, it's the first major flashback. One of the things I have to say I really appreciate about this. And I brought this up. If you listen to what I uh, to my coverage of *Common Rider Black Sun* on *Giant Size Violence*, and then later on *Henshin Men*, my other podcast, you should totally be listening to. One of the things that I brought up that drove me a little crazy is I didn't feel like the sh- that show did a very good job of demarking when it does its time jumps, when it's doing flashbacks and then going back to the present. This show actually does it, but here's the thing: it only tells you the year when a scene is taking place once and then if it goes back to that time frame again 
it doesn't tell you again, and it just does it. There's nothing else that indicates it other than, oh, we're following a different set of characters. So I have to give this show credit. It's trusting the audience, but it's also making sure that it gives them enough information to know when the time jump is happening. Because from what I understand, that's going to be a key component of this because there is going to be a lot of time jumping. We're going to get a lot of flashbacks. So we're going to get a story in the past and a story in the present, and they're all going to run parallel in some form or another. But it did a much better job of making that clear than Common Rider Black Sun, like I was saying. And then, so we go there, and we've got characters running around in i believe it was one of the oh where was it oh where was it yes i know i'm failing at my job because i didn't write down their location i'm trying to remember if it was africa or if it was in europe someplace the middle europe or eurasia let me see. Let me see. Do we have... Uh, no, there isn't an, uh, an episode outline. But regardless, regardless. So we're introduced to another set of characters. And then I and I ended up calling it. So we're introduced to Lee Shaw, played by Wyatt Russell. So this is the young one. And he's escorting a pair of scientists, one of them a Japanese woman, and then an, and an American man. And they're investigating a bunch of stuff. And they believe that they're going into a place where it's just highly contaminated. It's so much so that they're making jokes about you know, not being able to have kids. And, and we get one of the, you know, another one of the great lines that I wrote down, which is that someone, you know, the Japanese woman asked, the, uh, asked Lee Shaw, that was the, uh, that's Wyatt Russell, and asked him, if he ever thought about having kids and he says, I, you know, I'm not interested anymore. And she says, cause they clearly have some sort of a past relationship, not romantic. I'm assuming just, they know each other. And she says, there was a time you entertained that idea. And he replies with, there was a time that idea was entertaining. <laughs> nice job show. Nice job. Okay. So then we start getting more of the intrigue because they go there, investigate, they're wearing gas masks, so at least give them a little bit of protection. They're scanning and they're getting radiation picked up. And then they run into a teenage boy who says that there is no contamination. There's a bit of a language barrier there, and the, the Japanese woman has to take her mask off so she can, you know, probably to indicate that they're friendly. She able to talk to him, and then they find out that the contamination was just a story to scare people away. Ooh, intrigue. <laughs> Ooh, intrigue. <laughs> yeah. So, because I was thinking, I was like, why is this kid not affected? And then the show very quickly answered my question. Nice job. And the boy says something about how they, they she, there were people who were trying to quote unquote drill a hole to hell. I'm wondering if that's hinting at the hollow earth. I'm not sure. I'm not sure quite yet. So we got that very nicely establishes our two main plot lines in this. The one in the past and the one in the present. The one in the present seems to be more, at the moment, seems to be focused on interpersonal drama, whereas the other one is focused on a bunch of intrigue having to do with the work of Monarch because I think it's pretty well... I don't think they come out and say it, but it is strongly implied that the that our characters in the past are working for Monarch, for sure. 
And then, you know, got all the interpersonal stuff here. So the plot lines have differentiated each other. And, you know, so you're getting two different flavors of story there. All right. And I even wrote down, this is about halfway through the episode around here. And I wrote halfway into the episode, there's been little monster action, but I am 110% invested in the characters and story. Lots of intrigue. And that is something I've heard people say that it's some of the best character work in the monster verse. And I will say, yeah, that is true, but I think what benefits them is that this is going to be a 10-episode series, so they've got room to breathe and, and compared to a two-hour movie. So, you know, I'm going to cut them a little bit of slack there, but you know, it is still a technically accurate. But one of the things I realized with this, particularly with Kate's story, is that there are parallels between her and Ford Brody in Godzilla 2014, and this seems to be a little bit of a a theme throughout the monster verse, which is fathers and children. Cause you'll, you'll see that a lot. We certainly the most prominent one, the most obvious one was Brody in Godzilla 2014, but you saw it again in King of the monsters with, uh, his name is escaping me now, but you know, but the 11's dad in that, and then that carried over into the ne- into the next film. We don't really see it in Skull Island, not really, but still in the Godzilla. On, you know, when you're on the Godzilla track, you're seeing a lot of stuff having to do with fathers and children, which I think is an interesting little motif there. It's one of their trademarks, I suppose. And then we get some more world building here, which is interesting because after all of this dramatic back and forth w- between Kate and Kentaro and Kentaro's mother. You know, then she tries to leave, and then he goes to get her, and then suddenly there's an alarm. It even startled me a little bit while I was watching. And she gets taken away and down into a subway, and she's told that it's an early warning system, and when she asks what it's for, Mom says, Koshira, which was just great. And I will answer that message later. I should have put my phone on Do Not Disturb. I am a terrible, terrible broadcaster. That didn't mean you had to agree, Jimmy. Anyway. So then this one, we get some more shades of Pacific Rim, just more grounded because, even literally, because they just go down into the subway as opposed to having an entire underground shelter with elevators and everything that people that are reinforced and go down there. So we get this impression that they're expecting Godzilla to be there. And the fact that she's in Tokyo and this is where the story really kicks off in the present day. That's a nice homage to the series roots. And it's, it just feels very appropriate. And the fact that and what's interesting is there's all this build of this tension and then he doesn't show up, but I'm still appreciate the fact that we see how Godzilla's presence has affected the world in this series again consequences and i love it i love it and then let me see and then we get some more flashbacks this is another thing so we're we there's several timelines that you have to keep track of but only a but only there's a couple of them that are just one scene like i mentioned the 2013 and then we get a 2014 flashback where we actually go to golden gate bridge and we see what she was doing she was in one of the buses she barely gets free. And then this is where we get the trailer clip where Godzilla 
you know, looks, uh, you know, turns over and sees her. We see, you know, him attacking the bridge, like in the movie. So we're kind of, we're getting the same thing, but from a different angle. And then we see the bus that she was in fall down, presumably still with passengers inside of it. So it's that big traumatic event. And then later on in that flashback, we also see her encounter some people with Monarch wearing basically military gear, trying to clean things up. So she knows of the existence of Monarch, but she doesn't know what they do. She doesn't know what their name is and things like that. But she is aware of their work, like I said. And then we go back to the flashback and we hear Muto. That gets name dropped again. And then we also see, although I think here it's in the more generic sense, you know, massive unidentified terrestrial organism, not the specific monsters from Godzilla 2014. Because it turns out that the, you know, because they, they're, it turns out that that's why there's no radiation is because they absorbed all of it, keeping with the established lore that we've gotten about the Titans in the later films. And these are not the Mutos from the movie. These are very ugly, mean insects, as we find out in the, in the end, at the end of the episode. All right. So, with all of this going on, uh, with all of this, Kate starts investigating a little bit more because she wants to know what the heck her dad was doing. His cover story is that he was apparently making software for satellites. They go to his, I guess you could say his office, and she finds a safe behind a, you know, a, a big wall-sized blueprint, essentially. And then she, you know, they're trying to type in all these passwords to get in there. It doesn't work. They're trying different birthdays. And then and this was a nice touch. She fig after trying to put in her birthday, her mom's birthday, Kantaro's birthday, she figures out that it was actually a combination of all of them. So and that's what got her in there. And then we find the tape that presumably was recorded by Randa at the beginning of the episode, and we that we saw be recovered by the fisherman. And now he had possession of it, at least for a little while, and now they have it. And because of that, they start digging around a little bit more. And then we get introduced to more text messages. Stop it. I'm not talking to you right now. We'll do it live. Anyway, and then we get introduced to another character. Her name is May. May, who is a hacker. And she's a black woman, an expatriate living in Japan. Apparently used to be in a romantic relationship with Kentaro. They're on a break. And she's like, when are you coming back? You said you needed space, blah, blah, blah. So we're establishing there's even more drama between these characters that I'm sure will come to the forefront later. You know, it's, it's only hinted at here. Eventually, they get her the tape and she hacks into it. And that tips off Monarch because it was the decryption code was run online briefly and they were able to figure out that it's in Tokyo. But in the meantime, they're getting access to all this information. And one of the things that they discover is a photograph of, and I called this, of Kate's grandmother in what I'm assuming is a Godzilla footprint. And it's the woman that we're seeing, the Japanese woman that we're seeing in the flashbacks. And then we go back to the past where they find this nest of Mutos and they go down into it and are the Japanese woman, the grandmother is just extremely excited 
by this. Oh, I should also mention this was uh, this was cool. This is a nice personal touch. We find out that this whole time Kate has is actually bilingual, and she surprised Kentaro and May. And May knows Japanese, so she's bilingual. So everybody's bilingual. She said that Japanese was the secret language of her and her father. So they feel miffed because, uh, slighted uh, even, because they thought that she had been, basically she'd been lying to him all this time and you know, he was translating for his mom and all that. Like People are just keeping secrets from everybody in this, which is just great. Hold on. Mm. No, not that, Jimmy. What are you doing? Oh, I get it. It's because you thought it was funny. Whatever, whatever. So anyway, oh, and one of the things that's in the tape is Bigfoot. So apparently Bigfoot is related to Titans. Bigfoot's real? Yes, I know, because Yetis are real. Ugh. Must you remind me of that episode? I know some consider an all-time classic. Ugh, okay, whatever, whatever. All right, let's 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 finish up what we've got here. Let's finish up what we got here. Mm. So we go back to the flashback and it ends with this harrowing scene where those eggs with the bugs hatch and obviously this is before alien or else they would have known better <laughs> it gets out it tries to attack them hold on phone <laughs> and starts attacking them and this was when we had already had a little bit of foreshadowing where somebody in the present mentioned that the grandmother died when their dad was little. And then the scene ends with the bugs, very determined giant bugs, I might add, because they pile on top of each other to grab her while she's trying to climb a rope. And they drag her down, and that's how the episode ends. So we are presuming that she is dead and that that photograph that they found was taken before we saw that wonderful way to end it. It's a nice little cliffhanger. Episode two is up. And as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to go watch it and get that second recording done for you. Screening rooms still got the popcorn and everything. And I'm looking for, I'm looking forward to this. This it's an extremely strong start. We've got complicated characters, lots of intrigue. I really want to know where this is going. And you're going to come along with me on this journey week to week, MIFV Max. And then for those of you who are listening to this in the future, have fun binging through the supercuts. All right, on to episode two. <laughs> Hello, MIFV Max and future kaiju lovers, or rather kaiju lovers in the future. What was that again, Jimmy? Right, right, right. I got, I got it right this time. Okay, okay. <laughs> At least I caught it before you did. All right, all right. So let's get right into this we're going over episode two of legacy of monsters although i do want to check something here really quick while i'm thinking about it what else have chris black and, uh, and matt fraction worked on severance for mr black 
All right, and what's Matt Fraction going on? The f it, this is keeping with the tradition of using these relatively inexperienced creators to do this stuff. Let's see, Matt Fraction. I know, I know. I, the name sounds familiar. He's a, oh, he's a comic book writer. Worked on the Invincible Iron Man uh, Fantastic Four. Well, FF, so that is the Fantastic Four. What is it? Wait, what? No, the Future Foundation, excuse me. The Immortal Iron Fist, Uncanny X-Men, Hawkeye... And he's also done Casanova, Six Criminals for Image, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen for DC Comics. That's why I know the name. He's a comic book writer. No wonder this works out as well as it does. Okay, now that I've gotten that out of the way and informed all of you about who's behind the camera here running the show, let's get into the notes, as Luke, Jack, and Eddie would say on Earth Destruction Directive. So we get... An even farther flashback in this, and no resolution to the previous one, which is an interesting choice. Meanwhile, the present-day stuff continues to progress. So now we've gone to Manila, 1952, and then after that we do a lot of globetrotting in the flashback portions, which is another way that it distinguishes itself from the present-day stuff. All the globe drive because we had Manila, we have, and most of it's in the Philippines, and oh, there was one other location, but I didn't write it down. But the Philip Manila and the Philippines were the two big ones, although Manila not quite as much. So more time jumps, like I said. It's interesting that that it's doing this. It's kind of a, I guess, a kind of a postmodern thing where it's not done chronologically. For sure. If this had been made, I don't know, 40 years ago or, well, maybe not even 40 years ago. Yeah, probably, well, I don't know. If this had been made 50 years ago, it would have been chronological. Here, it's jumping around all over the place. If you want to say it's postmodern, you could say it's postmodern. It's a bit like Quentin Tarantino. He was the one who really popularized that idea of this nonlinear storytelling. But, you know, it, it works here. It flows kind of thematically. And one of the things that I wrote down is this show is not afraid to acknowledge the realities of history, we'll say. Because it, it acknowledges that the fact that Keiko, that's the grandmother I was talking about, the fact that she is a scientist in the early 50s and a Japanese woman, it's just a fact that that would shock a lot of people because when we're, when, and it's, it's a scene not unlike what we saw in the Skull Island movie with the photographer because the, 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 the male characters are like, really? Yep, Mason Weaver is not a man. And in this case, Lee is surprised that the scientist he's protecting is a woman and makes a comment about you know, how he made a snap judgment about it and even asks, I mean, did you make a snap judgment about me? <laughs> and she says it's not the same, and I'm not sure if that's supposed to be a war reference or something. Like that, but it does beg the question, and I, I, I should have perhaps done a little research on this. Uh, it is 
perhaps a bit of a stretch that a Japanese woman would be a scientist at this point. We find out that she studied in America. She studied at Berkeley. So that probably helped, but it's still pretty astonishing that this was going on in the 1950s. I, it's weirdly progressive, we'll say, <laughs> for this time, and especially for Japan. That, I mean, fresh, in uh, 1952, I mean, I'm not, yeah, the occupation would have just ended. So that's just, it's a little bit of a stretch, I think. But at this point, I, I'm willing to go with it. So, meanwhile, in the modern day stuff, going to quote modern day stuff, things have progressed. And now our trio of characters are, they're separated, trying to go their, I guess their separate ways, you could say. And then Monarch gets involved. Yep, Monarch gets directly involved. <laughs> we have this scene where we're introduced to Tim. <laughs> Not the sorcerer, but Tim, who is played by Joe Tippett. And I don't know if he's actually this awkward or if it's just an act, but he meets Kate in a train station and basically just blows his cover pretty easy and just says, you know, you know, give us what we want, you know, knowing that they have the, that she found the tape and then she weaponizes her iPhone and <laughs> throws it at him and runs. And then he does manage to catch her, puts her in a car, puts a black bag over her in true espionage fashion. And then she has a panic attack and PTSDs and goes back to San Francisco. So we get another quick glimpse of Godzilla in this. So I'm wondering if this means she's also claustrophobic. Maybe. So she has claustrophobia and PTSD. Yeah. Thankfully you dodged one of those, Jimmy. Uh, but yeah. And then there's a car accident. She manages to get away and she reunites with other characters. Meanwhile, the drama that's going on with Kentaro and Emiko. Emiko is the name of his mother. I wonder if that's an homage to Godzilla 54. Just throwing that out there. I get it. It's a Japanese name could mean anything, but still. And they have this scene together where, well, there's another scene where he went to his dad's old office and he just loses it. He snaps and wrecks everything there. I get the feeling either I, I, there's either a history there He's upset with his dad, too, or he's just shot. You know, he's taking his anger out about recent events out on everything. But I suspect it's because it's directed at his father. Hence why he's wrecking his office. And he finds another film reel. This one labeled for, oh, what is it? Philippines 1952 thereby connecting our two plot, plot lines. And then Monarch tries to go in and mess with him. It was Tim again, and now he's got his would-be Black Widow there with him who knows some Japanese. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Either that or she's Trinity from The Matrix. One or the other. Sure, Jimmy. How many crushes did you have growing up? A lot, apparently. <laughs> you, got, you, you got a whole harem of waifus, don't you? I'm going to stop you right there. Anyway, so, so mom gives him a picture of Lee, and here's 
interesting thing. We start finding out just how interconnected all of these characters are. Apparently, Lee is Kentaro's great uncle, sort of, apparently, because he, I, my suspicion is that Randa and Keiko's son is their father. That's my suspicion. So it, everything's getting very closely tied at this point. Now I understand why it's, you know, they're making such a big deal about legacy. So anyway, he gets away. All three of our characters reunite because now they know they're all being tailed. They're all finding out things that they shouldn't know about. And they got to do something about it. I like it. You know, so now we've got a, a little bit of a fugitive thing going on here. Now, I will say, I should have brought this up. The, the scene where they're ripping up uh, Keiko, not Keiko, Emiko and Kentaro rip up old photographs and just and throw all the scraps around as if you know that's supposed to help them feel better. I, that's kind of a weird thing. I wouldn't be tearing up old family photos, even if I wanted the catharsis for it. I don't know. I guess it's it's just not me. It just didn't make sense to me, but I guess it makes sense for these characters. And it's an endearing scene, really showcasing the caliber of acting and writing that we have going on here. And then I we find out then we find out that the guy, the white guy that we saw in the previous flashback, I just don't maybe they mention their names, I don't uh, all their names I don't remember, but they definitely emphasize them here, but it's Bill Randa as in John Goodman. So this is a younger version of John Goodman in the 50s and he bumps into Lee and Keiko while they're in the jungles of the Philippines tracking something and he says, "Oh, I'm tracking something too." And they find out that they're looking for the same thing, this dragon that snakes across the sky in the same pattern. They realize, uh, well, because Lee says you're both crazy and leaves, and then Keiko and Randa go off together, and I kind of wrote my notes like, ooh, romance on a dragon hunt. <laughs> That's what all the nerds want, right? Romance on a dragon hunt? Sounds like the title of a romance novel, Romance on a Dragon Hunt. When they realize that they're basically looking for the same thing because they compare these maps. So one is from a satellite, one is something that Randa himself drew based on stories that he'd been hearing about from local folklore. And we start building toward this idea that we might get to see a quote-unquote dragon. And I got kind of excited about this. But then we get to some major strangeness. <laughs> some major, major strangeness in this because in the middle of this, of the Philippines in this jungle, we have a battleship. Yeah, I know it's not the real sound effect, but I didn't take the time to upload the sound effect. Yeah, Jimmy, you should have done it for me. I know I came straight in here, but okay, let's, we're not arguing about this. We're not arguing about this, but there's a battleship in the middle of this thing. And apparently it disappeared. So now I'm wondering how the heck it got there. And then we find out Randa was not only a Navy veteran, which we knew from the Skull Island movie, but he was also at Pearl Harbor. I don't remember that detail being mentioned before. That's interesting. And he said he was the sole survivor of his boat, and this was the boat he was on, and it disappeared nine years before. I'm just like, I, I just I have so many questions, and I need to know what's going on, and we don't get answers in this. And what makes it 
even weirder, I have to admit, is there's this kind of slimy substance that they discovered that has enveloped a lot of the interior of this ship and covered a bunch of the crew members that are in there because they find bodies. And all I and all I keep thinking is, okay, got this unnatural, deathly fungal sort of thing, possibly absorbing people. It's on a ship. Is this an homage to Matongo? I'm asking myself this because if we're going to have a Titanus Matongo, I'm all for it. Or maybe they wanted this to be Matongo, but Toho isn't going to give them the rights because Toho said no ho, because that's how they roll. And they decided okay, then we're just not going to call it Matongo. We're just going to make it a Matongo in all but name. I mean, there's no actual like mushroom people or anything there, but still, I can't help but wonder if it's an homage. Why it's there, why the boat is there, and what it has to do with the monster that, spoiler warning, we do see in this, I don't know. I have a lot of questions. I don't know if I'm going to get answers because got to wait until next week for the next episode. Actually, it's supposed to be out Wednesday, even though it's supposed to be out on Fridays and the release dates on Wikipedia haven't been updated yet. But I guess Apple realized that putting the next episode out on Black Friday, probably, you know, especially in the United States with Thanksgiving, not going to get any hits. So they're wisely, you know, putting it out a little bit beforehand, kind of like I'm going to be doing. Stay tuned. <laughs> okay, watch those podcatchers. <laughs> Assuming you're MIFE Max, which is kind of silly because if you're the kaiju lovers in the future, you've already never mind. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. But just saying, there's there's a lot of revelations and things that are going on here. We've got th- we've got the intrigue increasing, especially in the present day stuff. We've got Monarch going after people, and it's just, it's really ramping up. It's really ramping up, and I, I, I've i liked it quite a bit. I even, the funny thing is, I even wrote in my notes, I have to remind myself to write notes because I'm just enthralled with what's going on. Also, I would like to point out that Kentaro looks, reminds me of John Cho. So, I don't, it's just weird. Specifically, John Cho in the very unfortunate, awful, awful, no good Cowboy Bebop adaptation done by Netflix. That's unfortunate. But anyway, anyway. And then we start finding out that you know, we start seeing random film, the real that is found in the present. I'm going to say right now, the footage that they're using is supposed to be when Randa was filming it. It They put a grain filter on it, but it's just not quite working, guys. It doesn't look quite old enough. It. I'm still willing to buy it. I give you credit for doing it, but it just doesn't really look like film. It still looks a little too clean. It looks a little too processed. Sorry. But yeah. So one of the things I liked hearing Rand to talk about is he wants to know what terrifies the storyteller. Why did they tell the story that they did? Basically saying all of our myths and legends and things have some sort of a basis in truth. And he's trying to uncover what that truth is. That was even something you mentioned earlier. It's like, Oh, we're all hunting for the same thing. Oh, well, what's that? You think he's going to say dragon or monster Titan, whatever. And he says the truth. And I like that. There's a Jason Bourne reference in this, which seems a little weird. I'm not 
is Jason Bourne really that relevant? I would have thought James Bond would make a little bit more sense. That's a little more culturally ubiquitous, but hey, what do I know? And then finally, we get to the end of the episode after the characters are trying to figure out, uh, in the present, are trying to figure out where to go, what to do. So they realize, well, maybe we should get a hold of Lee, as he seems to have connections to this. So they go to Lee. They find out where he is. And then we finally get Kurt Russell being awesome. And then they talk with him a little bit, and they find out that he's basically being kept in essentially a monarch prison. And he has a, an ankle uh, an ankle bracelet with a tracker. And then he just cuts it off because, again, he's awesome. Throws into the water. He's like, you got 60 seconds to the side if you really want to do this. And then that's when that part of the uh, of the story ends. And it's a great cliffhanger for that. But then we go back because he's B.A. And then we go back to the past stuff. And now we've made things even more complicated because now there is a monster attacking the battleship and there are these big hands that are clawing through and getting into it. And I have to say, the hands look suspiciously, suspiciously like Godzilla hands. Uh, so I did think it was Godzilla for a second. Randa comes back, is trying to save him. The, you know, Randa gets buried under some debris, but again, because he's being saved by continuity, he can't die yet. <laughs> He you know, does get rescued. They get out. They narrowly avoid being crushed by the battleship. And then we find out that it was a dragon. It was not Godzilla. It's this bat-like creature that reminded me of the giant bat from Godzilla the uh, from Godzilla the series in the late nineties. I'm aware that thing is still being housed on. Well, it's not even the beta site. It's the gamma site because the, which used to be called Monster Island itself. And I just did a whole episode about how confusing the whole Monster Island branding is. Ugh. Anyway, we're moving on. So we, got, so we have all of that, and they're like, man, you know, it really is a dragon, you know? And it, w it was relatively brief, I'm, but it was worth it, all this buildup to what really amounted to really basically one scene in a few minutes. And I'm wondering if that's kind of what this is going for. Obviously, this is made on a television budget. It's not going to have special effects everywhere, especially when it's 10 episodes. So I'm wondering if they're going for a quality over quantity thing here and trying to use it strategically, which I do think is a good move. Now, I've been going on about this for about 20 minutes. So uh, to wrap things up, I, I'm really liking what we're getting so far. I, these characters are incredibly compelling. I am invested. I want to see how all of this is going to pan out. I am wondering if we're going to get any more of the movie characters on here. We did have John Goodman make a cameo in episode one. Could we see Ken Watanabe show up as Sarazawa? That would be really cool. I mean, could we get really weird and have Ford Brody? I don't know. Probably not likely. <laughs> But that would be interesting. Could we really try placating some of the MonsterVerse haters and have Brody's dad show up? And why is that actor's name escaping me? I hate it when that happens. Help me out here, Jimmy. Okay? Help me out here, Jimmy. Uh, I'm going to vamp, 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 vamp. Brian Cranston. All right. So could we have Brian Cranston show up in some capacity? That would be exciting. 
I'm just saying that would be really exciting. So with that, I think that completes my coverage here. I'm looking forward to seeing more and hopefully as the weeks go by, we'll be piecing together this puzzle. In the meantime, thank you for listening to this portion, MIFV Max and Kaiju Lovers in the Future. Well, here we are, Kaiju Lovers, the day before Thanksgiving, and I'm cranking out a little bonus episode here for MIFV Max members, even though, since it is the day before Thanksgiving, which admittedly is a uniquely American holiday, I have to keep some odd hours because I'm heading back home for Thanksgiving to see family, and... Traveling from Monster Island to the United States can be a little bit hazardous sometimes. No, Jimmy, it would probably not be a good idea to fly there in one of your mecha because I don't want to terrify people. I know it never stopped us before, but seriously, man. All right, if you want to fly back to New York to see family... Oh, my apologies. I'm so sorry. I forgot war and space and all of that. You're not going to PTSD too hard on me, are you? Thank you. All right. Anyway, we need to cover the next episode of Monarch Legacy of Monsters, Episode 3, Secrets and Lies. A little bit of a theme we have there, debating what's worse, secrets or lies. I mean... I, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure. It might depend on context. You know, both it still involved deception to a certain extent. But I will say there was one scene in this particular episode that was spoiled for me because I dared just go on YouTube to do some shameless self-promotion because that's what I do. It's part of the job. So I kind of... I did, didn't know the full context, but I knew it was coming. We'll get to that here in a moment. So, at the moment, I'm repeating myself, I know. So, with this episode, we still don't have a resolution to the 25th... Oh, no, wait, excuse me. This picks up in the 2015 segment where episode 2 ended, so that it, yeah, that's nice. And we get to see more of the daring escape. So this opening action sequence is actually pretty fun. You know, it's got some, again, we got some good writing in this. You know, what's your dog in the hunt? That's a nice variation on a common phrase. But then we have this, it's a thing anymore. It's always going to be funny. The young people know what old people don't sort of a thing about technology. So we got old Lee trying to stick a, a key into ignition to start a modern car. And he's like, what the heck's going on? And then they say, hit the button. And you know what? I understand the frustration. I'm not a boomer, but I understand that frustration. Sure, sure. You're one of the boomers who understands how things work, I think. Maybe. Are you really a boomer? You're not at liberty to say. And don't want to talk about it. Okay, I get it. I get it. Whatever. Okay. But I understand his frustration because I've tried it myself and it just baffles me. I guess I'm just a little too used to 
<laughs> the old cars that I've driven. All right. So we have the scene where he tries to barrel out with all the young people in the car and he ends up hitting the brakes and stopping and then bar- the bumper barely kisses these big cement pylons that come up. And then he basically tells them to get ready for some craziness. And then he finds an alternate route and it's, it's nuts. <laughs> it's, it, it's a fantastic sequence. I have to say, you can't go wrong with a good old fashioned. Well, it's not really a car chase, but it's close enough. Close enough. All right. So then we have this nice transition where the camera zooms in on Kurt Russell and then it goes back to what I figured out was 1954 for reasons. (laughs) And you really, and then it's Wyatt. Russell and man, why it really looks like his dad. I see why they cast the two of them because it, you know, there's a level of suspension of disbelief in other cases where you have a younger actor playing the, well, the younger version of an older character and the transitions, if they do something artistically, they don't always work, but it really works here. And then we have this meeting of the minds, maybe, kind of, meeting of the minds and the guns. I don't know, because it's our scientist characters, Randa and Keiko, who are now meeting Billy. That's his first name, William. Who are meeting with some military types because they're trying to get funding for Monarch. And Lee is basically acting as the liaison for both of them. And he has this wonderful line, it's like herding cats if cats uh, had Geiger counters and thought they were smarter than you. And the sad thing is, there are some cats that might actually do that. You had one. A likely story. Okay. All right. And then we find out what they're housing in there, and this goes back to the photograph that we saw in the previous episode. But they took the entire impression that they took of a Godzilla footprint. They brought it with them, and then they're housing it in a a warehouse. And we know, as the audience, we know what this is. So you know, but it's just kind of cool to see this now. We're getting expansions on a lot of stuff that we you know uh, we knew or it was inferred in previous stuff. By the way, I have since found out, even though I've read this comic and I, I just forgot about it. It's been a while that Lee was in the Godzilla Aftershock comic that was the uh, the tie-in for Godzilla 2014, which does start to beg the question if it's canon or not. The show certainly is, but the comic, not, we, we don't know anymore. But this was at a point I realized a couple of things. One, we still haven't resolved the cliffhanger from the 50s segment from episode one yet, And I also started wondering, can you watch this show without having seen the MonsterVerse movies? I think you can, but does the little bits that you, more that you get out of it, having seen the movies, does that really enhance it and you lose, and is it really that much of a detriment if you haven't? I don't know. I don't know too many people who would be watching this who haven't seen the movies, although it must be working because 
Monarch Legacy of Monsters is number one now on Apple TV+. Plus. That's exciting. I mean, it was already cool enough to see Godzilla feature prominently in ads on my PlayStation 4, but now to see that this is number one on the streamer, that's great stuff. I love it. I love it. It's not often that you can see Godzilla hit number one with something like this when you think it's just that niche, but, I mean, come on. Come on. We have an entire island of kaiju. Godzilla is one of them. Godzilla is always popular here. More people are coming to the island. It's great. And you would think that it would just be more popular. I don't know. I don't know. But regardless, let me know. Are, are you one of those people who hasn't seen the MonsterVerse movies, or at least not all of them, and you're watching the show and you're getting into it? I would love to hear about that, whether it's you or someone else that you know. Maybe you have a friend who hasn't watched them and just you know, wants to share, and you want to share the, you know, a sampler of kaiju material with them. I don't know. Let me know. Please let me know. Now, I will say this. I, I realized also that you know Wyatt and Kurt look so good together but and now I'm starting to think, you know, the the younger William Randa, it's because the Wyatt and Kurt look so good to you know, look so good as the same character. You know, Randa's not quite working for me, not only visually, but I'm I think the characterization's a little bit different, which a tiny bit unfortunate when you you know when it's so close with the other characters. Okay, and. I have a feeling this is something that's going to get explained a little bit later, but the younger characters do bring up that Lee should be like 80 or 90 years old, but he clearly isn't. That's a good question. Is he just taking really good care of himself, or do we have some other chicanery going on with Monarch? Or maybe, maybe... It's a positive side effect of the Titan radiation. We'll find out. And then we have a really cool transition here where there's this whole conversation going on between everybody. That's where the, the whole thing about, you know, you, you don't look as old as you should be. And then we find out, this is a really cool transition. You know, we find out that they're not stuck in traffic. They're actually hiding on a boat. They have the car on a freighter with a bunch of other cars. And they're sneaking from Japan to South Korea. Ooh, a, another little homage to the kaiju film culture of Korea, perhaps? Hopefully the littlest gatekeeper appreciates that. We'll see. But, you know, it's a nice tie-in because season four, coming up, we're going to be covering kaiju all over the world, the Monster Island World Tour. Korea's got a lot to offer. They're like a distant third between Japan and the United States in terms of kaiju output, it's nuts. It is nuts. And this is also a point where I started thinking, you know, the soundtrack is starting to remind me a little bit of Tron Legacy, and I love that soundtrack. Now, it's it's not nearly as good. I mean, unless Daft Punk secretly composed this, which I doubt they did. But in this one scene on the boat, it definitely reminded me of that film and i still think tron legacy is an underappreciated movie and then here's the part when we go back to the 50s here's the part that just seeing a thumbnail 
and a video title gave this away on YouTube today, but we get to see the Castle Bravo test that was talked about in Godzilla 2014. We got a glimpse of the bomb that they used for it. So this is that secret project where they tried to kill Godzilla with a nuke. So guess what? Godzilla does show up in this. We'll get to that here in a moment. I'm wondering if they are doing a little bit of a retcon because they do describe it as a test, whereas Sarazawa said they were, quote-unquote, trying to kill it. You know, as only Ken Watanabe can say. By the way, Dr. Sarazawa does get name-dropped in this episode as well, which I'll get to that in a moment. But I, so I don't know. It seems like it's being treated less as a test and more like they are just trying to kill Godzilla. And that creates this tension because the scientists don't want to kill Godzilla. It's it's the classic Godzilla 54 dilemma where we want to study this and learn from it, whereas the military guys are like, no, this thing's a threat. We need to kill it. So we got that. And then the commander, and I'm probably reading into this, says something about, how it's not going to Los Alamos in a crate. And I'm like, is that an Indiana Jones reference? You know, is that where they keep the Ark of the Covenant? I didn't ask you, but I'm glad you can't talk about it. Last thing I need is to have my face melted because I decided to see that thing in its crate. Well, it does help that I'm not a Nazi. I resent that, okay? Just because I'm tall, blonde, and blue-eyed. Come on, man. All right? Sheesh. All right. All right. And then we get we jump back again. And I, I got to say, the jumping back and forth between timelines is still working very smoothly here. I, I Thank you. Thank you. Now, can you teach Kamen Rider Black Sun how to do that, please? So now we we have a conversation between our former couple, in twenty in the twenty fifteen segment, you know, and I'm not sure. There's a scene where the May is talking on her cell phone. I'm thinking, is she talking to the current boyfriend or whatever? And then she just throws it into the ocean. And I'm like, was she actually doing that, or was she just you know doing that to help herself feel better? I don't know. I'm a little confused on that one. I have to admit. And then they also, at the end of that scene, when they decide what they're going to do, and basically Lee says, okay, fine, I'm going to let you guys be in charge because we're trying to find your dad. And they dump the contents of a bag out. Not sure what was going on there. Maybe I missed something. Don't know. All right. And then they get to South Korea, and then they get caught by you know, trying to you know, get through the passport line and they try to bribe them and then they don't take it. They don't take the bribe. And I thought, well, that's a little weird because, you know, spoiler warning, I've been doing some research already on season four. And I know from doing some research on the host that bribery is pretty common in South Korea. It's kind of part of their culture, but I think it's more common among the older generation. So maybe it's just much less common now. And then we find out that our monarch guys who meet with another woman, and I'm not sure what, she's certainly high up. She says she knows Sarah Zawa. She name drops him. That's where that comes in. But she flies in and she's like, hey, I should be 
moving my daughter into her college dorm and then complaints about her ex-husband having to do it, blah, blah, blah. And she got pulled away for work, blah, blah, blah. And then that black widow type who was with her, she starts speaking French with this woman. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting flashbacks to Monique. Partly because, you know, Heat hangs out here on the island and I've had to work with them a little bit recently and yeah, you know, don't mess with Monique. So I'm wondering if this is kind of an homage to Monique. If sure, if it ends up being Monique, I'm gonna freak out a little bit. I will admit because I'm not sure. If it is Monique, then it's not the best version of Monique that I've seen. And then she makes mention of our mission or yours. So it's like we got secret plans going on here. She's talking to the bearded uh, scientist guy with the with the glasses. So I'm like, what's going on here? And then okay. One of my favorite moments in this episode, our transportation for our heroes is an old bomber with propellers and everything, and they make jokes about, oh, it's not old, it's vintage. And then I started, what I should have mentioned is that earlier in there, the reason they don't get taken away by the South Korean police is because Lee has a friend named Duo, I hope I said that right, who... Spoiler warning is only in this episode, but he's only in about half of it. But every scene he's in is gold, and I love this character. I grew to love this character very quickly, and then I should have seen what they were doing. I should be genre savvy enough to know this, but they were they were setting me up. They were setting me up, and yeah, we'll get to it. We yeah, we will get to it, and then we go back to 1954. And Godzilla shows up. Godzilla shows up, and it's exciting. So we actually get to see something that we were told about in Godzilla 2014. There's an amazing tracking shot. It's unfortunately too short, where the camera is going up Godzilla's back along the spines, and it looks great. I wish it was longer. And, yeah, so he's in this episode for a couple of minutes. The nuke goes off. Our uh, Keiko tries to stop it. She gets physically stopped by Lee, and it goes off. I mean, we all know it has to happen because we know from history and from looking, you know, from the film, the original film, that, well, in Godzilla 2014, I mean, but although I meant, the, when I said original film, I meant 2014. And we know that's going to happen. But it's still relatively effective and shocking when it does happen and it creates a lot of tension between the characters and it does seem i was waiting for godzilla to still be a lot you know show that he's alive because we know he is but now i'm wondering if the idea here is that the bomb went off and they genuinely thought he was dead like he didn't show up again for 70 years you know 60 years gotta do my math yes i know i can't math leave me alone all right so, you know, in a way, Keiko kind of becomes classic Sarazawa from the 54 film. And they really thought that they killed him. And then, you know, it was like I said, create some great tension. And then we go back to 2015 and Duo has this line, welcome to the USOA. That, you know, that was a nice one. All right, I like that one. You're making me like you. Because they're going to Alaska. So they are flying in this old bomber across the ocean to Atla to Alaska. And yeah, I wrote in my notes here, it's like he's hardly been in the episode, but I love him. And then we have this crazy scene where Lee takes over to, and shows off how good of a pilot he is. And he has 
He has a uh, main girl t- take a drink out of a water bottle under the, under the seat and then put it up on the dashboard and he uses it as an altimeter. And then we have this really intense landing. And having just flown recently, I have, I have a greater appreciation for scenes like this now. And then we get some absolutely gorgeous location filming. I love it. This is not a green screen that they are on a real location and they're it's Iceland. If I remember correctly, you might want to check on that for me, Jimmy. Sure. Sure. But I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be Iceland. They're passing it off as Alaska. It doesn't matter. It just looks amazing. And then we find the, the cockpit for the kid's dad's plane. There's a pilot there. It's not him. It looks like it's supposed to be a crash. Even though I'm thinking this is one of the weirdest looking crashes that I've seen for, you know, really in film. I was like, how am I supposed to believe this? Why would the whole thing get severed and just come off like that? Well, that's the the show knew that I would anticipate this, you know, because that is foreshadowing. And then they find a tent and they go over there. It's like, if, you know, if the plane crashed, why would there be a tent? And then they go in there and we get a payoff for when the kids were talking about how his, how their dad would always write things with a pencil. And instead of using a pencil sharpener, he'd use a knife and he would sharpen it himself, you know, until they got really small. And then they find that a pencil like that revealing that their dad is alive and he quote unquote survived the crash. But, but then we find out, oh wait, no. It wasn't a crash. That's when it dawned on me. No, it was a kaiju, or in this case, a titan. So, Duo uh, starts freaking out. And he starts telling people, get back on the plane. He gets on the plane, gets things going. And then this kind of trying to figure out how, like this mole, basically, this ice mole with crazy tentacle tendril things around its mouth that glow the tips glow and i guess it sprays ice because it grabs the airplane sprays ice and then sprays ice freezes it and smashes it so duo is dead and i am disappointed because i love that guy but i should have known that they were being as effective with their characterization and how and the performance and just how charming he was in the handful of scenes that he had because he wasn't going to last long uh but that was my last note duo's dead dang it but that was our cliffhanger monster takes out probably now turning to our characters who are standing there like crap what are we going to do now and unfortunately, due to the holiday, I'm going to have to wait nine days to see what happens, which also means you're going to wait just over a week to get more coverage, MIFV Max. Although, for those of you kaiju lovers in the future who are listening to this as part of one of the supercuts, you're welcome. You can just wait a minute to go to the next segment covering episode four i don't remember the title of episode four i did see it listed i like how apple tv plus instead of just showing you a video preview actually has a text preview with a little descriptor saying like this is what the next episode is about that's nice of you apple tv plus more streamers that don't do the netflix model of dumping it all in one day you should do that too all right with that have a happy Thanksgiving for, to you, MIFV uh, Max, and 
happy January, I guess, to the Supercut listeners. <laughs> anyway, we're closing out. On to episode four, whenever that will be for you. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to MIFV Max's, at least at the moment, coverage of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Today, we're going to be discussing episode four. Yes, I was just about to get to that. Okay, okay. Normally, I would have had this out probably Friday, but you have to understand. I had people over. Some very special guests, one of whom you're going to hear in the next proper episode of MIFV, which will be on Godzilla Minus One, that being Jack G-Man Hudgens and his fr sister, almost said friend, his sister, Rebecca, who you'll recognize as the artist of our new logo. And I had them over for a special screening of the movie. I was very busy keeping them entertained. We did watch the new episode together. But I, wa I was so busy, I wasn't able to get around to recording about it. But now I'm doing it, and hopefully my notes and reading a little bit from the Wikipedia page will keep me <laughs> abreast of you know, what actually went down in there. But first thing I do want to talk about is... <sighs> All right. Legendary, Monsterverse, whatever... You need to work on your kaiju names. Okay, fine. Titan names, I forgot. They like the name Titan. But Frostvark? Frostvark. Not a great name. Especially since that doesn't look like an aardvark. That, good sirs, looks like a mole. All right? That, just seriously. That... Aardvarks have long noses. This has the funny little tendril things on the side, like a mole. Guys, just no. No, I know that's the name you submitted to the scientists here on the island, but they're seriously considering not using it. Monarch, Monarch, what are you doing? What are you doing? Anyway, anyway, the structure of this episode is kind of... Strange, even by what monarch, even by monarch standards, this show standards, I should say. In fact, uh, Jack actually pointed out that it feels like an episode of Lost. And the more I watched it, the more I thought about it. I was like, yeah, that is exactly what this is. It really does feel like an episode of Lost because we have a completely different flashback in this that centers around Kentaro. And we're basically getting, well, in May, and we're basically getting their backstory. We're seeing when they met and how they met and all that, and all that fun stuff. And it's actually more interesting than I would have thought. Oh, yeah, I forgot. The episode title is Parallels and Interiors, which actually, the more I think about it, the better that title sounds especially when you watch the episode because we do have two parallel flashbacks going on and it's about the interior of a couple of our characters. But I'll get to that a little bit more here in a second. But it's, so it's a completely new flashback. It goes back to 2014 
and all the other flashback storylines that we've been following we are completely dropped. We don't go to the 50s, so we don't see Wyatt Russell in this at all, which I guess is fair because Kurt wasn't in the first episode at all, but we did see Wyatt, so I guess this is breaking even for their contracts. Wouldn't be surprised if they demanded to be in the same number of episodes. But the other thing that's weird is that we start off with a woman who is in the desert in the United States, and she's in what looks like a motorhome, and she's detecting strange energy readings from Alaska, which tips Monarch off that there's Titan activity up there. And it's obviously it's the Frostvark having been bothered by our main characters. We also find out this is in Utah and it's Outpost 47. Hmm. Interesting. Monster Island here on Ogasawara ha- is home to Outpost 83. So, you know, that's where we are. <laughs> we, you know, because we obviously Monarch's going to set up here. Because I got to keep an eye on stuff. I got to keep an eye on all the things. So we have this big chase with our heroes trying to get away from the Frostvark. Oh my gosh, that name. I'm going to call it the Frostmole just because it's just a better name. But they hide in an ice cave. And there's some pretty nice suspense here where they're hiding in this cave, which is underground, trying to elude the the Frostmole and... You know, try not to make a sound, and you know they, they can see through the ice wall, and it cracks, and you know. So I mean, part of his even wonder is like, you know, if, if the ceiling will just cave in, and then the, the the thing's foot will come down and perhaps crush them. You know, like so, it's a very effective scene. And then we get our first major conflict of this episode, which is May falls into some water and is quickly developing hypothermia. So now we have a bit of a ticking clock with her, which is a nice complication for things, and it also spurs on the flashback for Kentaro and May, and we find out that Kentaro actually used to be an artist, and he made some really cool-looking art, which which is this you know, kind of a semi-3D Sort of thing. I'm not sure exactly how to design his art because he's not a painter and it's not quite sculpture. It's a little bit different than that. But regardless, it looks really nice. And he's supposed to be starting you know, unveiling his art at a gallery. And so this is big op- you know, big event that he's supposed to be at. But instead, he meets May and stays with her. And we're, uh, you know, and then they bond, you know, so he stays there and does that as opposed to going to the event, which disappoints his father, which we'll get into that. We'll get into that a little bit. But there was an interesting line here where someone said, you know, if you can't buy the art, buy the artist. That's a heck of a line. And to be honest, that actually, if, you know, if you want to get into the... I guess the corp uh, the corporateness of that it, that just makes more sense because oops messed up my notes there because why get one art piece when you can buy off the artist and have them keep making art for you makes sense to me and even the transitions between the flashback and the quote unquote present are 
done a bit like Lost. It doesn't have the rumbly, lo-fi music cue for it, but still. And then we find out that the monarch is detecting pulsars in Alaska, just like Janjira. So we're calling back to 2014 again, the Godzilla 2014 and the Mutos. And I'm wondering what exactly this means. So is this something that all of the Titans can do or only certain ones? And why is it significant? Again, I have questions. And then I will admit there's this weird part where we find out that Kentaro said that he saw something from the plane and nobody else saw it and he insists on finding it. It's this strange looking building and he thinks he can find help there. Whereas everybody else in the group is just trying to get to where they think there might be a shelter, but you know, but it's a little bit farther away and they're worried about if it gets dark, then the hypothermia is going to get worse for May and, well, she's not going to make it, and Kentaro is determined to get to this strange-shaped building because it's closer, and then they just let him go, which seems like an odd choice. It's not like everybody hates him or anything, but they just let him go. I guess it, I guess they just uh, Shaw just figured it's easier to just let him go than to keep fighting with him, and they're burning daylight and you know, losing time here. I don't know. They never really discussed it. I'm just kind of inferring things there. Now, there are some weird, albeit artsy transitions that are in this episode. That, you know, For what I can remember, where Kentaro, while he's wandering around, he passes out from the cold, and then he's just staring up at the sky on the lion in the snow on the ground, and then he looks over, and then there's May sitting there holding a, a mini projector, and then it transitions to the flashback where they're laying in bed together, and she's holding this little projector and putting images up on the ceiling, and they're just watching it together. It's weird, but it's also really cool. I got to give them credit for that. Then we get, you know, we get back to the present, and now Shaw has set up a tent and a fire and they make the difficult decision of using the dad's notes in order to keep the fire going which i would have thought would have been a bigger deal than it was in this moment considering the trouble they went through to get it so i don't know it's just odd i would have thought that like i said there would have been the more hesitation unless Kate really just hates her dad that much. I don't know. But then the funny thing is within about maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 seconds, all of that is rendered moot anyway, because the frost mark finds them. Okay. <laughs> okay. So was it pointless? I don't know. You'd be the judge. I guess it's meant to be a little ironic. And then we do get another really interesting line here where someone says scientists studying giant atomic-powered monsters should be more open-minded. That is one of the mantras amongst the scientists here on Monster Island, let me tell you. Oh, really? 
You use that line with some of your friends at NASA because they didn't want to believe in space monsters. Good Lord, man. I mean, come on. After like the likes of Ghidorah and Dogra and all the rest of them, it's that hard? Sure, whatever you say. <sighs> yeah, keep working on it, man. Keep working on it. And then <laughs> this was interesting, continuing to show just how much of a boomer he is. Shaw makes reference to VJ Day, which is a World War II reference. I had to explain what that was to somebody. It was a, actually a fellow podcaster who decided to come visit this week. A uh, We'll just call him E.T. And despite what he thinks he knows, he didn't know what that was. And I had to explain to him that that was Victory in Japan Day. Mm -hmm. Look it up sometime, kids. It's related to VE Day, which is Victory in Europe Day. That one came first. Anyway. Ugh. And then we get more scenes similar to that artsy transition for Kentaro, where you start to wonder if he's hallucinating. I'm still not 100% sure he is. We get another callback to the pencil shavings. And then it's this really weird sequence where he goes and he sees his art and it's kind of sort of coming to life there a little bit. And he meets his dad and we find out that his dad was very, I'm I don't know if it's an illusion, a hallucination, I should say, or if this is supposed to be what actually happened. He spent the night, he spent the evening with May. They got together. And then he went back to the gallery when he should have been at that event and his dad is upset with him for you know not being there, even though the whole point of the reason why he was doing this, even though he didn't feel like he was ready, is because he's trying to make his dad proud. And that ended up being the last time that he saw his dad before he disappeared. So basically they had a bit of a falling out. And you know, it, it feels unresolved further developing all of the drama that's been building over this time. So I guess maybe that, it, you know, it wasn't an illusion, you know, but, and we saw his dad sharpening the pencil by hand. What I thought was really cool is that the subtitles while people are talking here actually faded out, which is not something I usually see. And I love the visual verisimilitude there. So I thought that was it's actually one of the more creative uses of subtitles that I've seen in a really long time. So nice job there, guys. Really nice job there. And even if you have the subtitles on by default and it's not just, you know, they they pop up when characters are speaking a foreign language, obviously. But to help rep out, we turn the subtitles on just in general. And they, you know, so even when you're doing that, you know, they fade out. Like again, like I said, really cool. And here toward the end of the episode, especially, is when I made the connection that the rest of my friends watching us with me were surprised I didn't make before that, which is we have Kurt Russell in a frozen environment. How did I not pick up on this? Of course you figured it out at the end of the last episode. Why didn't you say anything? Because you had that much faith in me. Well, thanks, I guess. Now I just feel like I have failed you. 
I have failed this island. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, Ollie, whatever. Okay, regardless, for those who don't know, I'm referring to John Carpenter's The Thing, which took place in Antarctica, not Alaska. However, this episode, if I remember correctly, was filmed on location. It was, I want to say it was Iceland. Could be wrong on that. You might want to check on that, Jimmy. But I'm pretty sure it was Iceland. It wouldn't be Greenland. And then we find out that the Frostvark, this is how they figure out how he was able to follow them and you know how what they were going to try to do to elude them. Uh, elude it, I should say. But the Frostvark eats fire like Gamera. You know, classic Gamera, which is just wild. <laughs> so they use the bonfire to distract it. And then, to their surprise, a monarch helicopter shows up. And I do believe, you know, Kentaro did find the building he was looking for, if I remember correctly. Let me double-check that. It's been a little while. Yeah, it was a radio station. It had been repaired by his dad. And he was able to call for help. And then Monarch showed up, helped him out. And then the laptop that they had worked so hard to get, the MacGuffin, it's too frozen to work. Or at least we're led to believe it's too frozen to work. And then by the end of the episode, our heroes meet Tim and Duval. Duval. All right. And then that's our cliffhanger. Things are moving along nicely. The flashback was honestly probably the best part of this episode. And you know, it was great seeing all this backstory and the clever use of subtitles and everything else. Although... I'm going to admit, it's not the best episode of the show overall, like I said. Well, I didn't say that, actually, but it's just not the best episode so far. It's not my favorite, but I'm, you know, like I said, it's a much-needed episode to move the present-day plot along, and it gives us some much-needed backstory. So, with that, this is one of the shorter recordings that I've done on this. I'm going to wrap up here. Next time we talk, it will be on episode five, The Way Out, which, all right, guys, really? <laughs> I get what you're trying to do with, you know, some uh, some synergy in promotion. The preview for this episode, by the way, they released another trailer for Monarch that was showing off a bunch of clips that we've already seen, and I'm guessing clips from the second half of the show, including some more Godzilla, and what appears to be Godzilla fighting a bat creature. I'm assuming that's the finale. Regardless, next episode is called The Way Out, and they made a little promo for it that says, G-Day minus one. Really, guys? Really? Really? Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's in poor taste or not. I guess we'll find out in episode five. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to MIFV's coverage of Monarch Legacy of Monsters, or should I say welcome back. We're going to be talking about episode five, The Way Out, which... After watching the episode, I will admit, was a nice title and a very befitting title, but we'll get into that. Yes, Jimmy, I'll let them know. <laughs> I have a ton of notes on this episode, probably more than any of the other ones, which is 
saying something because there's precious little monster action in this one. But what we get is Godzilla. Yeah, I will admit that. But yeah, this should be surprising yet not with me. I love character-driven stories, which is what we've been getting for the most part with this. So... Yeah, it shouldn't be a surprise if you know me all that much, but, well, there's an elephant in the room we're going to have to address. What is not the elephant in the room, I will say, is that it has been a little... uh, I have tarried on recording this, partly because it took me a little while to actually watch the episode. There were spoilers that got posted pretty quick onto social media, which made me a little less interested in watching it, so it just became a lower priority. Plus, I've been busy around here. The board has been keeping me pretty preoccupied, I will admit, especially with my contract negotiations coming up. I don't know, maybe they just want to wring as much work out of me as they can before they're done with me, theoretically. I don't know. I'm talking with Raymond and Gary of the Monster Island Legal Action Team. Hopefully that won't happen. Regardless, we need to get into this. All right. So we open up and we've got Monarch being a little darker than I'm used to seeing them be. (laughs) They're holding people in cells. They're not torturing anybody. I'll give them credit for that. And it does remind me of the post credit scene in Kong Skull Island where they held a couple of characters in an interrogation room. It's kind of similar to that. You know, it's just the, you know, basically, yeah, it's just interrogation rooms. And I did like that, you know, there was the line, Black Ops BS. I just thought that was pretty funny from Kate. And we're going to be talking a lot about Kate this episode. Now... If we had French Lady Duval, who, like, I, I don't care what anyone says, she is perilously close to being Monsterverse Monique Dupree from Godzilla the series. And she comes in and she says, Titanus. <laughs> Titanus. Or Titanus. I just felt like she said it wrong. And it was because, I thought it was because of that thick accent. Just. Sounded strange to me. Okay, maybe I didn't write the phonetics down as clearly as I should have. All right, we're moving on. So, we find out that May is not her real name, or at the very least, she has a lot of aliases. Which doesn't surprise me, but it's treated as this dramatic revelation. Because Duvall goes in and talks to her. And starts rattling off all these other names. They kept her alive. She didn't die of hypothermia, thankfully. Or unthankfully, depending on how you feel about May. And then we had, I believe his name is Nick. Is it Nick? No, Tim. Excuse me. Tim. Got Nick on the brain with talking about Monique. (laughs) And I am friends with Mr. Totopoulos, Dr. Totopoulos. But he says... he's getting upset that the higher-ups in Monarch are not telling these kids what's going on. They're keeping them in the dark. And he says, Monarch is their legacy. We have title. And we have title. So there you go. There you go. 
And then they decide, well, the best thing to do right now is to let the kids go and follow them to see what they can learn. And there is this scene where Tim tries very hard to do that. You know, he swears a blue streak at him and just tells him to go and then gets into the uh, gets into this van that says, how'd I do to Duvall? And she says, you're learning. At that point, I was getting some Mendel Craven vibes. I know I'm making a lot of Godzilla the series connections here, but go uh, go with me. All right. And then we cut back. They, they let the kids go, but they didn't let Lee Shaw go. And then Monarch engages in its favorite pastime, slideshows. I've mentioned this a couple of times already in some of my past MonsterVerse coverage. I think notably Kong Skull Island. They love their slideshows. They love their slideshows so much. It's just do they not upgrade their files or anything to modern technology? They just keep old projectors around to show stuff off. It's just kind of funny. But anyway, they show old film footage of Shaw when he was younger. And in this case, played by Wyatt Russell, hanging out with young Randa and the Japanese woman. Her name is escaping me right now. Yes, I'll turn my fan card into you after we're done. Jeez. Anyway, th- there was some nice cinematography here where they positioned Kurt Russell just well enough that uh, that he has the projection of his younger self, Wyatt, on top of him. That was some nice work. I have been consistently impressed with the cinematography in this show, I have to say. Some might argue it's better than the movies. I don't know if I go that far, but some would say that. All right, and he makes a comment about how you know we don't stand on the we don't stand on the shoulders of giants. We sit on them and weigh them down. It's a nice variation on an old cliche. And then when Duval asks him how he's how he looks as good as he does for 90, he just says a mission gone wrong. And I'm thinking, oh, is it supposed to be the magic healing radiation that the monster of the monsterverse? That's my prediction right now. We'll see how things go. And then we you know, we go back to the kids and we have them wandering through an airport and we see an ad. It's just this is a nice piece of world building here showing you, which is the nice thing about the this television show is it gives us a few more details about the world and how things have changed. And there's this ad that comes up that's advertising a bunker for people to live in to avoid Titan attacks. And one of the lines from this ad that's playing at this airport was the lucky will survive, but the smart will thrive. Hot dang, guys. Where'd you get that line? The board's department of PR. You know, I may not be working here in a few weeks, so I don't really care. And did I care before that? I don't think so. Anyway. Anyway. And we also see the Golden Gate Bridge in an establishing shot, and it's still a mess. 
So obviously it hasn't been rebuilt or salvaged or whatever. And then we're introduced to another character, another new character, I should say. Uh, and he has all the charm and charisma of Duho. And I predicted he would die, but he didn't die because of what happened to Duho. But his name is James. And my gosh, this guy is tall. He's got to be at least 6'6". He is a mountain of a man. He's a mountain of a man. And then we go back to where, or well, maybe not back, but then we go to where Kate's mother, Carolyn, Caroline, lives. It looks like a bunch of mobile homes. And apparently these were established by FEMA, but then they couldn't bring themselves to relocate anybody. They just stayed where they were. And Kate makes a comment about drama terrorists, oh, not terrorists, tourists, and disaster porn, which seemed a little bit meta to me because disaster porn is a term that I've seen a lot. And it's often brought up in connection to modern blockbusters. You could potentially aim that at things like kaiju films. I don't think it applies most of the time. At least not to things like the MonsterVerse, I would say, or Pacific Rim for that matter. But it was still it was just nice that, you know, they're kind of throwing that in there as a bit of a meta reference. If you want to hear me talk more actually about that subject, go check out the episode of Derail Trains of Thought I did back in 2019. I don't remember the episode number. But the episode title, if I remember correctly, was Disastrous Popcorn. And I was that was with my friends Nick and Tim. I would almost say it's kind of the backdoor pilot for the Monster Island Film Vault. Just saying. All right. And then uh, Caroline, uh, Carolyn is quote-unquote a work friend with James. I predicted that they were more than that, and it turned out, they were, they're trying to become a couple, which seems a little bit strange. I'm pretty sure James is a lot younger than she is, but he is quote unquote waiting for her. And the implication being that she's trying to get over the, you know, all the stuff that happened with Kate's dad, which becomes a point of contention in this. Yes, I know, Jimmy. In my notes, I kept spelling Kate with a K, but it's actually Kate with a C. We're moving on. And then it's funny, she, you know, she Kate introduces Kentaro and May to them, says they're friends, and her mother's flabbergasted, just trying to wait on them, and... Then she's just says, Mommy, you're allowed to have a breakdown. And then she does, and she makes a comment about the red zone, which I'm guessing is the... It, it kind of like how Janjira, a big part of it, was closed off, and then it turned out there was nothing there to worry about. I'm thinking it might be something like this. So it's the immediate area around the bridge. And th they have a big point of contention with her going off to Japan looking for stuff with her dad. And then she mentions that her, well, no, at the end of the episode, she mentions that her dad is not dead and all that. It was, it's a nice scene of drama. And then we get to a part, and I will admit in retrospect, it kind of reminds me of the host where we have our main characters per, you know, in, I think it was now they, they did hijack an ambulance. And then later on, they, put on some hazmat suits to sneak into places. And in this one, 
they are in a truck and pass themselves off as, I think they pass themselves off as paramedics. No, that wasn't paramedics, but, you know, but the workers that who are allowed to go in there and I just found myself blindsided. I was like, wait, where'd they get the fake IDs in the truck? Are we just supposed to assume that James did it because James is cool? Felt like I missed something. If I did, please let me know in the comments. Because I was just like, what the heck is going on here? Just couldn't quite figure it out. And then we had, this is an interesting thing. This also felt a little bit meta. And I've seen people bring up stuff like this in connection to like the second Transformers movie. Revenge of the Fallen about how people thought that what happened when the Transformers had their big old battle, how it was uh, it was just fake. And there we found out in the first episode there are some people who thought everything that happened in San Francisco at the end of Godzilla 2014 was quote-unquote a hoax. And then someone brings that up. I think it was, I believe it was, I want to say it was Kentaro. I want to say it was Kentaro where he says, how could anyone think this is fake? Might also be a little bit meta about, you know, the you know, special effects in movies and things like that. And then we get a really profound answer. And this might, this might be the line of the episode. I've got some pretty major issues with this episode, but up until this point in it, I was tracking. I was tracking with it pretty well. And <clears throat> Kate says... It's easier than waking up every day and thinking the same thing could happen to you. Hot dang. Hot dang. Because she's very right. We all do that. We would all like to just think that all the horrible things we hear about in the news, that it can't happen to us. Nah, there's no way. There's no way. I remember you know, when 9-11 happened... That, you know, people said it was like watching a movie. And to a certain extent, I felt the same way. And even though I'm not expecting to be in you know, on an airplane during a terrorist attack or anything like that, it's still something that I think about. You know, it's like I would, I, you know, I don't want to think about that because I would rather that not happen to me. Can't live in fear, people. Can't live in fear. But like I said, that, that right there, line of the episode. So I'm still tracking with it. Still tracking with it. Okay. And then we get to another scene where Shaw is being interrogated by Duvall. And finally, finally, five episodes in, five episodes in, we get a name drop for Godzilla in this show. And it's said by Kurt freaking Russell. I approve. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Now, we're, so we've got all this mystery building up. These characters know things, and they, but the audience doesn't know what exactly is going on. And Shaw says something about how wrong is a wrong. Uh, excuse me. Ron is wrong? No, that's not what I mean. How Monarch is wrong, but he doesn't say what about. And I, that's what, literally what I wrote in my notes. Monarch is wrong about what, Shaw? We don't get any real answers in this one because we're only halfway through the show. And we, we cut back to the quote-unquote red zone. And it's definitely green screen, but I don't mind it. It's good green screen. 
So I'm not going to hold that against it. And then we get... We get to a motif that they start using because we, uh, for up until this point, I'm thinking, are we even going to get a flashback? Because we haven't had a flashback yet. And it takes until almost halfway through the episode before we do get a flashback, and we get a flashback back to 2014. And legendary, we need to talk. We need to talk a little bit. Because I really want to know... If this was just accidental parallel development, or if this was a subtle attempt at synergy, because the way they do the flashback is it's not like, you know, two days before G-Day. No, no. It's G-Day minus two. And then later on, we get, and this was one that just amused me so much. I had heard about this because of a preview, and it amused me, and I didn't realize it would actually be in the episode. I thought it was just being done for the preview. And it actually says in the episode, later on in the flashback, G-Day minus one. Exactly! Coincidence? I think not. I would bet money, kaiju lovers. I would bet money that this was a creative decision that was made pretty recently, because it's just a graphic. It was made pretty recently because they realized they could tap into the the soon-to-be-released Godzilla Minus One. Perhaps thinking it would be popular, anticipating it being popular, I don't know. But like I said, I think it's an attempt at synergy. It seems a little bit weird. I will give them credit. It's subtle enough that I'm not bothered by it. But it does stick out, I will say, given the fact that this episode was released during the second week of... Godzilla minus one's time, well, second week of its run in theaters. Hopefully it will be extended. I'm expecting it to be extended in the States again, because as long as it keeps making money, it gets to stay. But yeah, I actually took a little video of that and posted it on some of the socials for the film vault. And it got a surprising amount of responses. I'm just like, really guys, really? Yeah. But here's the part where we need to talk about that we've gotten to the elephant in the room. This was the part that was spoiled. And I'm trying to figure out how to go about this because it's something that it's that is really important to some people in the fandom. I think that appreciation is a little overblown personally on both sides of the spec uh, on both sides of the opinion spectrum, I guess you could say, because some people are flipping out negatively about it. Some people are flipping out positively about it. I'm going to be honest with you. It blindsided me. And I don't think it entirely works. And it doesn't paint Kate in a very 
nice light. I was fine with her up until this point. She was angry, obviously. And I thought it was it was reasonable if that had to do with her dad and just everything that had happened to her on quote unquote G Day and all of that sort of stuff. So I was I was tracking with that. And then we find out in this flashback that Kate is a lesbian or at the very least bisexual. I don't know. They don't say one way or the other here, but she's in a relationship with another woman whose name is Danny and they kiss pretty, pretty passionately. I might add. And yeah, that got plastered all over the internet and people were like, well, finally, representation with Godzilla in Godzilla and all that. Sure. You want to you, you wanna rejoice over that? You can go ahead and rejoice over that. As a straight man, I don't really care. Not to put anybody in that community down or anything. I just don't care. It's just not important to me. And I guess I'm one of those weird straight guys who isn't thrilled by two women kissing. Just not. Call me weird if you want. I just don't care. (laughs) But here's my problem with this. This was not foreshadowed at all. I got no impression at any point in the four and a half episodes leading up to this that Kate swung that way. So it just seemed so incredibly strange that they would take her in this direction. Now, it's not like they were hinting at her being straight or anything either, but there really wasn't much opportunity from what I can remember of the past episodes where that would have been something that would get brought up. But maybe I'm missing something. I could be missing something. I don't know. Whether it be, you know, hints that she was, that, you know, she might have been straighter at the very least by, or that she was lesbian. Like I said, this just seems weird. Now, I will admit, given what happens over the course of the rest of the episode, I can understand why it may not be something that would come up because, well, Danny, the woman we see her with in the, at the beginning of this flashback, and I c- saw this coming. She was on the bus with the children that was on the bridge when Godzilla crashed through it. So she died, and Kate blames herself for that. And you know, and we also find out in this episode she's got a severe case of PTSD, and uh, this is that's another interesting little parallel because Godzilla minus one deals a lot with PTSD as well because our main character is a comic is a former con- well failed kamikaze pilot, but that's neither here nor there. So like I said, this, this just blindsides me, even though it was already spoiled the whole time during this episode up until the scene, I kept thinking, when is this even going to come up? And then like I said, bam flashback. So I have to say, this was a misstep on the part of the filmmakers because there was no indication of this. And maybe they just think people are just supposed to assume it's normal, but 
I don't I can only speak for myself here, but I don't just automatically assume people are one way or the other unless they make it plainly obvious and Kate just never struck me as a lesbian. Not really. So I don't know what was like I said, it just didn't make sense to me. The way and then the way that is used in this flashback, let's just say it doesn't ingratiate me to her. Well, we'll get to that point. We'll get to that point, you know, as we go. But anyway, so we have that. All right. Although I wanted to base this on some stereotypes. She does live in San Francisco, so maybe that should have been a tip-off, but, you know, I don't want to be too mean to San Francisco. Yes, I know. I have offended everybody in San Francisco who listens to the show. There goes our listeners. I'm sorry. Anyway. All right, so we did, you know, the the G-Day minus one thing. And this just amused me because she's, she talks, she tells the kids, this is 2014, that there are no phones in school. And I know that's a major problem in public schools. It's worse now than it was in 2014, let me tell you. That, just, that made me snicker a little bit. And it one of the kids says that, that his dad said that all the stuff... And Godzilla hasn't attacked yet. This is the stuff that was in Hawaii. So this is in the middle of Godzilla 2014 at this point. And says that, oh, it's a scam about real estate, which... I mean, I, you don't need to have a fake kaiju to scam people out of real estate. That just sounds like a really interesting idea. People, unscrupulous landowners, taking advantage of real estate prices after monster attacks. I mean, that just sounds fascinating to me. Let's get some more of that. I like it when stories throw in ideas that they don't necessarily develop, but it's just a great piece of world building. All right. So yeah, I said thirty minutes, and we get a we get a flashback. I do like the editing that we see here as they cut back and forth because we'll see a shot in the present, then we'll get this quick flash to twenty fourteen in the past and see what led to that case in point a bi- a discarded bicycle, and then we cut back to when that bicycle was you know was dropped by its rider, and you know I cut back because this is. The a PTSD flashback at that moment, anyway, for Kate. So I thought that that was very well handled. And then there's a point where we have this pretty tense scene where the the kids sneak around and avoid some soldiers who are there. Again, making me think a bit of 2014. And they get around it, and this was nicely foreshadowed because Kentaro grabbed a bag of chips or something from a store and he said i'm hiding i'm you know i'm uh eating the evidence or you know getting rid of the evidence or whatever because you know, someone said he was stealing and then he puts something in the bag and then throws the bag to the side gets the attention of some cats which we had also seen foreshadowed a little because we saw the cats earlier and then the cats go after it the soldiers point their guns at it thankfully they don't shoot the cat and then they walk away and but then Katara starts singing a song. I think it's a uh, it's a commercial jingle, and it's in Japanese. I'm like, how do the soldiers not hear him? It's not like they got that far away. Well, then they get caught by the soldiers, so I guess I spoke too soon. All right. All right. 
and then we go back to the G-Day flashback. And here's another part. And I don't know if I want to call this a misstep on the, on the filmmaker's part, or if this is just an unfortunate thing about Kate as a character that just isn't working for me, that is just not ingratiating me to her. But we find out why she had Danny go on the bus. It's because Kate cheated on her with another woman. And if you thought seeing two women kiss in a Godzilla-related property was crazy enough. Well, Kate wakes up in bed with another woman who comes up behind her and gets all kissy and affectionate. And it's a completely different woman. I'm like, wait, hold on. And then we find that she had her go on there because she felt bad for cheating on her, wanted to make sure, I've, if I'm assuming, if I'm reading this correctly, let me double check here. You know, let me see. She's to leave her behind to chaperone the bus of children. Okay. So feeling guilt over, okay. So maybe she just wanted to get away from her because she felt guilty. As she should. She should feel guilty. I don't care what kind of a relationship you're in, whether it's gay, straight, or whatever. Cheating is bad. Cheating is wrong. So you should feel guilty. I'd like to know why Kate felt the need to cheat at this point. That's something that goes grossly unexplained and undeveloped because I really don't see a reason why she would cheat. She seemed happy with Danny. Danny seemed like a perfectly fine woman. If she was straight, you know, I'm sure there'd be plenty of guys who would be more than happy to be with her. I'd be more than happy to be with her. And so I'm just like, why? Why would you do this? What is the point? There was no indication that she would cheat on her. It made no sense. Maybe I missed something. Uh, you really, you know how this works? Do I really want? You know what? You know what? You let's not get into that because you have yourself a new girlfriend, a controversial new girlfriend, I might add, but a new girlfriend nonetheless. So we should probably not delve too much into that. So yeah, I take it back. I do think. That was a that was another major misstep here. And then we get back to the present, and then we get basically the title drop as they're we have our characters wandering through the tunnels. They managed to elude the soldiers because there were some other vagrants who were there, and they're trying to figure out how to get out. And Kate starts PTSDing something fierce, and then May helps her out and reminds her, and this is. A common becoming a bit of a common phrase, but I think it's one that we all need to hear, and this is where the title of the episode comes from. The only way out is through. The only way to deal with adversity is to go through it, basically. That's what that phrase means. So they're looking for a way out of you know of this you know, of these tunnels, but she is looking for a way out through her trauma. So it's 
got to give the writers credit for the title there. And so paying off that little bit of foreshadowing there for you. And then Kentaro comes back and you know is saying that he found a way out and they have to follow the cats because the cats know how to, you know, they know all, you know the way to get out. So they just follow some cats that would make my animal loving mother very happy, I'm sure. And then we get to what they've been trying to get to this entire episode, which is her uh, which is Kate's dad's office at the top of a tower. They get in there and Kentaro tries ripping the <laughs> ripping this big map on, that's the size of a wall off off of the wall and all the thumbtacks go everywhere because that was what he hid stuff behind at the office in Tokyo, but it, there isn't anything behind this one. But then they come up with this clever thing. I got to admit, if you're going to come up with some cryptic way to hide stuff, this is the way to do it. And they, they foreshadow this because, hey, the sun's almost up, and then the sun does start coming up in their big windows, and they figure out that if you take some paper, poke holes in it at the right spots, hold it up to the window, position it just right, you can get locations, one of which was San Francisco, one of which was in Alaska, and they saw where the other ones were, one of which was in Africa, so I'm assuming episode six will be in Africa. All right, and then we get one last scene where they go back to see Caroline, and Kate mentions that her dad was involved with, quote, some secret organization like the CIA, but for Godzilla. Appreciate we got a second name dropped this time by a Japanese woman. Which almost... (laughs) I thought the way it sounded, it made me snicker. This is the grammarian and me coming out almost made it sound like he runs Monarch, which I suppose you can make the argument that he does. <laughs> Just, it amused me. Just saying. But then we see May go off by herself and she calls up Duval and says, basically, that she'll betray the rest of the characters if she gets her home. So May is not ingratiating herself to me of all that much either. Although out of all of these characters, she's the one who would cave in most likely and betray them because she sounds like she's got the most dirty laundry that can get her in trouble. Now May, uh, May does. Kate's got some personal dirty laundry as we've unpacked here. But yeah, it is May who's got the, the stuff that will make her turn on the rest of the characters so i will admit it's a nice cliffhanger to end on and i'm curious to see what happened to episode six but like i said i went there this episode ended up being such a mixed bag there were parts of it as i explained i really really liked and then other things were like this no this is not working and to be honest the stuff with kate being a lesbian and her lesbian relationships it just doesn't work here it really doesn't and i'm just wondering if this was some sort of last minute change you know if this had been written differently before because there's no foreshadowing for her to be a lesbian there's no real reason given for why she's a cheat it just it it exists just to make her feel guilty you know and she talked about how you know, she's angry at her dad, but she doesn't feel like she's any different. 
is that's as close to an explanation as we get, and it's just not a satisfying one. So I am, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. Not a big fan of that. That part of the story just falls apart for me, and it doesn't make me like Kate all that much. I'm more forgiving of May. I've heard, I've read, not read, I've seen one other take on this that says both of the women in this, well, really all the kids, but especially the women, don't come across very well in this. I'm more forgiving of May compared to Kate because at least with May, that was properly foreshadowed and it makes sense. And I'm sure it will be used well to create some drama, but... Yeah, this this whole thing with Kate just there's there was nothing to set it up, nothing whatsoever. I mean, and it wouldn't have taken much, it, you know, just a line here or there. I would have preferred that it would be before this episode, honestly. And there should have been something, something in the scenes we saw between her and Danny that would indicate why Kate would want to cheat. You know, even if it was a bad reason. You know, it doesn't have to be because Danny's an awful person. It could just be something like, you know, Kate is bored with the relationship or something. We needed something and we got nothing. It just makes Kate look awful. I know. I said it. <laughs> you know, I've gone, I've gone four years with this podcast, not having to venture into potentially dicey territory like this. And now, you know, I guess it was inevitable that I wouldn't be able to get away from it forever. Had to deal with it on one of my other podcasts, but yeah, wasn't expecting it to ever come up here. But there we go. There we go. So, next episode should be out in a few days. Hopefully, I will have my episode, you know, I'll have another episode out for all of you, MIFV Max, and later, the Kaiju Lovers. The next episode, which is supposed to be out on December 15th, I anticipate it will be out probably Thursday night, so the 14th, is called Terrifying Miracles, which, gotta admit, that's a great title. Really like that title. So, curious to see what's going to happen with that one. All right. In all likelihood, this will be the end of what I anticipate will be part one of the supercut that I release on the regular podcast feed, in which case, go get started on part two. For the rest of you, MIFE Max, I'll see you in the next discussion. Hello, MIFV Max, and later on, Kaiju Lovers, in what I expect will be the beginning of part two of my supercut for Monarch Legacy of Monsters. But for now, on MIFV Max, this is week six of our coverage of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. For the MIFV Max members, as I said, on Patreon. I know I'm repeating myself slightly, but we need to get into this 
because this was a step up from last week's episode, I can tell you that much. And so far, last week's flashback has basically been irrelevant. And I don't anticipate it's going to come back around anytime soon. All right, so let's get into this. We finally get back to the 50s flashback. We go to 1955 in Washington, D.C. at a Defense Department gala. And I can tell you right now, anytime I see galas and dancing and nice suits or uniforms in this case and pretty dresses, you have my attention. Just saying. I guess I'm a little old-fashioned that way. Sure, you lived it. Whatever. Actually, wouldn't you have technically not been born at this point? Because you were, what, 10 years old when the Virassians tried to invade? Of course you don't want to talk about it. Anyway, we're moving on. Well, I'm going to tell you right now... I need to look up the name of the actress who plays Keiko because we see her in a pretty dress, like I said, in this. And good grief, she is skinny. She is a tiny girl. Let me see. What is her name? I need her name. Mari Yamamoto. Good Lord. She, she is just such a tidy woman. I feel like I could wrap my hands around her waist. And I kind of have Trump hands. I'm just saying. I don't have the biggest hands for a man. It's just she's small. Really, really small. She weighs, what, 100 pounds soaking wet? Jeez. My goodness. Not that I'm complaining. She's a beautiful woman. But my gosh, I was shocked how tiny she was. And that's the thing about dresses. They tend to accentuate... Well, the wrong things are the right things, depending on the woman. Uh, let's just say that and leave it at that. I'm sure I'll get canceled anyway for even hinting at it. But so so much, such is the world we live in, I was trying to say. Anyway, there's also, I just randomly observed that one of these you know, bit characters that we see in here, one of the other soldiers in uniform, looks to me like a young Ronald Reagan. I'm probably way off on that. I just thought he looked like one. And this is something I have to say I appreciate this. This is the 1950s, barely a decade after World War II. But there's a general there that they're trying to impress because they want to get funding from Monarch. Because I forgot to mention Lee Shaw, played by Wyatt Russell, is there. And the general tells the other officers when referring to Keiko, don't worry, she's one of the good ones. It's unfortunate, but it's also... As I've said before in a previous in our previous coverage, it's just a fact. There was a level of prejudice toward the Japanese at this point in the 50s, this soon after World War II. It was waning, I, near as I can tell, but it was still there, especially when you've got military men here. And I'm glad the show doesn't shy away from that because it is a fact, an unfortunate fact, but a fact nonetheless. And then she brings up an interesting point. Again, she's kind of the Dr. Sarazawa here to a certain extent. And her I'm glad that she's Japanese because her attitude is very similar to what you would see in Godzilla films, particularly from the Showa era, which is that 
if they tell anybody about the existence of Titans, in this case, they're talking about Godzilla from a few weeks ago, she said they're either going to want to blow it up or march it into Red Square. That's, a, again, a very Ashira Honda, Showa-era Godzilla view of the military, which is that they can't be trusted. And given the fact that this is as uh, you know, the 50s, the Red Scare... The Cold War is really starting to quote unquote heat up. I know it's a terrible joke. Sue me. So it makes sense that they would either, yeah, just want to destroy the creature or figure out how to weaponize it because why not? And then we get this is such a great piece of writing here, grabbing some cliches, you could say, and polishing them up. And we makes a reference to how, you know, when you have a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail, and this is a hardware store? Hmm, nice one, sir. Nope, not that one, Jimmy. Come on, be nice to him. (laughs) Yeah, that was a nice one. And then Keiko adds a Japanese saying on top of that, which is, the nail that stands out gets hammered down because she's tired of trying to go and impress these people. She complained, actually, at the, be- at the beginning of this scene that she's wearing a dress that prevents breathing and wearing shoes that prevent running. I totally get it. <laughs> For what I understand, women's clothing are not always designed to be comfortable, and sometimes even I, as a man, marvel at how they put up with it. Congrat- you know, congratulations, ladies. You've got quite the fortitude, I have to say. And then Lee, being an old-fashioned gentleman, and this this appealed to me because, as I've mentioned before, I'm a ballroom dancer, and I bring that up because that'll be relevant here in a second. He just extends a hand to her as music starts playing and to Keiko, and Keiko says, the things I do for Monarch. I'm like, oh, come on, you get to dance. This is not a chore, all right? It is wonderful. It is absolutely, I, I dance for Monarch all the time. Really? They're having a, uh, their own gala here on the island. Will there be dancing? Oh, that's amazing. Of course, I'm not invited. Whatever. Oh, They only have Outpost 83 here on the island, but whatever. Which, Monster Island, something else we'll have to talk about. Anyway, we'll get to that. I got a lot of notes to go through. Let's keep going. And we have a dancing scene. And I hate to say this, but I have been taking ballroom dance lessons for a while now. And because of that, every single time I see a dancing scene in a movie or on TV, my dance snob just kicks in. My inner dance snob. I was not impressed with their dancing. They clearly don't really know how to dance. And Lee... He does not have his hand on her shoulder. That's where you're supposed to put your hand when you're, you know, when you're dancing with her. They're also not dancing the right style. I mean, he. What's funny is he corrects her and puts her hand on his shoulder, and it's supposed to be because they have this budding attraction to each other, and they slowly start to enjoy it. Particularly her, she's warming up to it, but it just annoyed me that he's like, I'm like, you're not doing it right. 
Uh, at least I don't think he is. I could be wrong, but uh, but I can definitely tell you they're not dancing correctly. They're not doing the right style. I think, judging by the music from what I was hearing, I think they were supposed to be doing a foxtrot. They were clearly not doing a foxtrot. They were barely doing something that was a step above the middle school sway, as I like to say. But again, it's my inner dance snob coming out. I'm going to stuff him back where he belongs in the deep recesses of my psyche, and we're going to move on before this turns into a rant master. All right. So, I this is when I wrote in my notes, did they have a fling before Keiko got together with Billy? Because clearly, in the flashback, which is a few years after this, in the first episode, she's with Billy because she put, plants a big wet kiss on him. So clearly something happened. So I'm anticipating that things are not going to end well as we go through these flashbacks. And then we get, they, you know, they slip away after they do all their stuff and they start talking about the future and what they want to do and, you know, what, you know, marry, you know the, the usual married life, so, you know, typical sort of stuff, the white picket fence and all that. And she says that the, her favorite thing about kids is how everything is new and it's event, an adventure. And Shaw says, this is such a dude bro thing to say and I'm amazed it worked. I really don't understand how it worked. But he says that his favorite thing about kids is making them. <laughs> yeah, not what I would call smooth, dude, but it worked because... They go to an elevator, presumably to head up to a hotel room to make some babies. But then the plot interrupts because this petty officer or whoever shows up with a message for Shaw. And he's like, oh, the things I do for Monarch. And then he takes the message and has to go do some plot related things. So the... <laughs> And I just wrote, and denied. And to boot, it was a message from Bill Rand. <laughs> uh, so he says, things I do for Monarch, and I'm thinking, or in this case, don't do. Hmm. And then we cut to, I believe after that, they did have a scene with Randa where they, you know, they talk over some stuff to go do some things. And then we cut back to 2015 and Duval. Monsterverse Monique, as I like to call her, breaks into the truck that's transporting old Shaw, Kurt Russell, and uses the her, the language barrier to her advantage because she just relays instructions to Shaw in French that the guard in the back of the truck doesn't understand. Then she knocks the guy out. And apparently she has decided to kind of go rogue with him because she had a sister, a Janjira. Interesting. So she has now, presumably, joined in with Shaw and his little crusade, which still don't have all the details on that. And then, oh, yeah, th then we go back to 1955, and this is where we get the scene I was talking about, where they're finding a radiation spike that's similar to the one that they saw right before Godzilla appeared, if I'm remembering the details correctly, and... Bill Randa says, well, it, it, after Shaw tries to ask him, is this a Titan? He says, well, you know, I'm going to have to give you, a, I'm paraphrasing, the three most beautiful words in the English language. The joke seems to be that he's going to say, I love you. 
no, I'm pointing out the obvious, but he says the three most beautiful words in the English language are actually, I don't know. Such a scientist thing to say, I have. <laughs> it really is. But I do think, if I may get a little philosophical here, that is something that I do think a lot more people need to be willing to say in everyday life. I don't know. It's okay not to know everything. I get it. That's ironic coming from me. But, as I think Mr. Randa is implying here, Jimmy, saying, I don't know, is the beginning of learning, which is also the beginning of wisdom. Thank you. All right, we're moving on. So here's their paradox, the conundrum that they're in. They need money to find Titans, but they need to prove Titans exist to get money. So they decide they're going to go prove that Titans exist. So they're all going a little bit rogue right now. Then we come back to 2015. There's a lot of jumping here, you'll notice. And now Shaw and Duvall are at the at Kate's mom's house. Kate's mom is not there. But we got the three kids. And he says that what he's trying to prevent will be G-Day times 100 or 1,000. And I'm thinking, is this supposed to be setting up the end of the show? Or is this going to be fulfilled in one of the movies because we've had two movies that take place after this and a third that's upcoming. So I'm not entirely sure what he's talking about. I'm going to assume that it's hinting at something that happens at the end of the show because otherwise it would feel like a little bit of a letdown if the quote-unquote finale that we're actually supposed to look for is one of the movies. So, okay, I... Now I'm just a little bit concerned that this is a level of hype that the show is not going to be able to make good on. But again, we've still got four episodes to go. I will reserve judgment. All right. Then we get some nice... We cut to the, to Tim and the... I think it's the deputy director of Monarch. I can't remember her name offhand. Let me double check here really quick. We'll do it live. Let me see. No, I'm not. No, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. All right. So there we see uh, damaged San Francisco in the daylight. So that's some nice world building there. We get to see some aftermath from Godzilla 2014, which is cool. And they find the office and then... Because apparently Tim is Columbo. That was a big joke in this in this scene was you know, him talking about Columbo. He figures out that there was a map on the wall because he saw pinholes on there and, and also realized that the way that the office was arranged, he's not looking out his quote-unquote million-dollar view. He's looking toward the wall, and he figures out by looking at the pinholes that there was, and realizing that he worked on satellites, that, it, that he had a global map up there, and then he... Does a rudimentary, draws a rudimentary map on there and basically figures out where they're going, which is Africa. Specifically, the Algerian desert, as we'll see a little bit later. But he also tells us that there's some other locations that I'm assuming we're going to visit in future episodes, one of which is like in the Vietnam-Cambodia area, and then another one in... Oh, where was the other one? I think it was in... I think it was still in Asia someplace. I can't remember. But, yeah... 
So I got to say, I was impressed with that. I was impressed with that. And then we, we also get Godzilla name dropped again by Tim, which sets up what's going to happen in both the flashback and here. We got some parallelism going on with the quote-unquote present and the flashback. And they talk about, you know, they're looking for gamma rays. And I'm like, oh, no, the Hulk. I know. Obvious joke is obvious. I'm a comic book nerd. What can I say? Don't know if I appreciate being compared to comic book guy from The Simpsons. Especially since I think comic book guy is two of me. But anyway. <laughs> and then we go back to 1955 and we are introduced... What is with this show with having these incredibly memorable, what I assume will just be one-off guest characters who never come back because I either die or they just have no reason to come back. So now we're introduced to this very quirky Japanese scientist named Dr. Suzuki, who he's just very entertaining. I need, who is this actor? I need to look up this actor. I'm going to do it live. Let me see. So, Dr. Where's Dr. Suzuki? Do we have Dr. Suzuki listed on here? We do not. We do not. That disappoints me a little bit. Because he needs to be added to Wikipedia here ASAP. Because I really need to know who he is. If you were doing blogs for this series, Jimmy, I would tell you to write one, to add that to the list. But... I don't know if you're doing follow-up blogs to this. I guess I'll just have to put it in the show notes when I find out. But regardless, here's the part that flipped me out, and I actually took video of it, and I'm probably going to put it on the podcast socials at some point. He named, he says, while talking to them, welcome to Monster Island. And I'm like, oh, frick, there's another one. There's another one, and now it's in the MonsterVerse. Oh, my gosh. What in the actual heck? Oh, my gosh. Me and Raymond had a, a whole to-do about it when we covered the Asylum movie called Monster Island. This is just bonkers at this point. And then to make it even funnier for me, <laughs> Randa makes a joke about the board of tourism. And I'm like, no, the board are the bad guys. And then you have to talk to my pseudo sister. And trust me, you don't want to do that. I know I've probably ticked her off for the umpteenth time. Do you think I care? Anyway, we're moving on. We're moving on. And he has invented something that's kind of be a bit of a MacGuffin in this. He has a gamma ray simulator that can attract titans. I know, it looks like a probe droid. And yes, you have a weird affinity for it because you kind of sound like one. Okay, we're moving on. Some people think you're a robot, dude. Seriously, I've had to field stuff like that. You, you really aren't a robot, right? Okay. I just think your new girlfriend might be a robot is all. Okay, man. I am sorry. Okay. All right. All right. Forget I said anything. Forget I said anything. Okay. We're moving on. We're moving on. Like I said, now we're going to the Algerian desert. And this is what I wrote in my notes. 
if Shaw turns out to be Kate's grandpa. Good lord. I don't know if I want that plot twist. Seriously. Not sure I really want that plot twist. And then, okay, this is a nitpick. But Shaw, Kurt Russell Shaw, doesn't know how to pronounce Mademoiselle. (laughs) Mademoiselle. He can't say it right. He keeps pronouncing it Mademoiselle. I mean, Kurt Russell. No, that's not how you say it. Even I kind of botched it a little bit just trying to relay it. But I actually double-checked. I went on Google and made sure to check. How do you pronounce this? And that's not how you say it, dude, unless that's just supposed to be part of his character. Maybe it is. I don't know. And then we get to a scene back in 1955. Again, we're jumping around a lot where Billy and Keiko are out in the field and Shaw is back at Monarch headquarters just taking care of things. He does have a scene where he goes to talk to the general while he's having a cookout in his backyard. And in this scene, he's trying to ask him how Keiko is doing and Billy completely ignores it. And I'm starting to think, oh, he knows. And now, now the bro competition is getting started where we got two guys who are going to start fighting over a girl because what else is new? (laughs) All right. And then... We kind of have a fulfillment of our character's quest, or at least the kid's quest. They come within at least 100 yards of dear old dad, who's trying to set up what looks to be the gamma ray simulator, a.k.a. the probe droid, in the trunk of a truck. And he's just trying to motion them to go away, and they think he's waving at them. And at this point, I'm like, okay, we're setting up that a Titan is going to appear... And I'm thinking it's going to be, I don't know, you know, some random monster we haven't seen before, which has been mostly what we have been seeing. But then I remember, wait a minute, there was a shot in the Monarch trailer, one of them, that featured Godzilla in a brightly lit area. It might be this desert. Hold that thought. I also was predicting that dear old dad was going to die, which just seemed like an absolutely mean thing to do. He doesn't. So this isn't Game of Thrones level of complete disregard for human life. I'll give the show credit for that. And then we go back to the 19 to 1955 and there's a conversation going on between I'm trying to remember Keiko, Bill Randa and Dr. Suzuki talking about He's asking him, have you ever seen a Titan before? Because he hasn't. He's been doing this to attract Titans, but he's never seen one. And he gives us our title for this episode, which is Terrifying Miracles. And it it is definitely the line of the episode, which is, Miracles should be terrifying. That actually makes me want to stop and pause for a second. Because... That is interesting because we do normally think of miracles as something wondrous, which they are, and something positive, which, yes, I would say for the most part they are, but saying that they should be terrifying. I need some time to ponder that, but if I could philosophize here for a second, because it got, like I said, it got me thinking. 
And maybe this is the Christian in me coming out. I don't know. I've been accused of trying to proselytize through my podcast when, no, I'm not. I'm just expressing my thoughts, which are filtered through my religion. But miracles in the Christian tradition are performed by God. And we are to fear God, not in the sense that it's not so much fear as in we fear something is going to destroy us, kill us, take something from us. That's very negative. It's more in the sense of being in awe of something, something because you're seeing that something is powerful. So in this case, the miracle, it, it, the, what you're supposed to quote-unquote fear with the miracle is the miracle maker this case, they're talking more about the miracle itself, that being the existence of these titans is something that is terrifying because these are wondrous creatures that they don't understand. And they are almost beyond comprehension because of how huge and powerful they are. So it's kind of rolling both things from the Christian tradition into into one, the miracle and the miracle maker. Like I said, I'm just thinking off the cuff here. I could be way off. This is something I may have to unpack with some of my brainier friends. Anyway, like I said, wonderful line. Absolutely wonderful line. Then our heroes in the press, well, I should say after that, there is a scene because Shaw shows up when he wasn't supposed to, and he has a conversation with Keiko, and basically it boils down to, we're going to have to decide between the greater good and our own desires. She wants to go with the greater good. He doesn't necessarily want to, but then they get interrupted by the plot again. We move on, and of course, it, it, oh, they kind of get, well, in the present they get, no, I'm trying to remember, how do they, how do they get, who gets caught by Monarch? Trying to remember if that was in the present. Well, it's not really in the present. Maybe it was in the past. It's. I mean, I finished the episode maybe an hour ago, and I'm already forgetting details. But of course, a titan interrupts their. You know, not interrupts, but he spoils their kiss because they do actually kiss. It's not that they got interrupted. They do actually kiss. But hey, you picked the best one to interrupt you. It's Mother Truck and Godzilla. Pops out of the water after grabbing the not probe droid and then throws it out of the water because I guess he was a little upset that it wasn't what he was looking for. Another Titan, I'm assuming. And he just kind of swims away and they're like, oh my gosh, he's alive. I wasn't expecting to see him in this. And then we have some parallelism where it turns out that the whole hillside that they are on, our characters in 2015, is sleeping Godzilla in a sequence that I have to think was an homage to Mothra versus Godzilla with him rising out of the dirt. I mean, it's quite dramatic. It's, you know, the whole hillside on him just falls apart like he's kind of shaking himself, I guess, like a, uh, like a dog. And then he looks at Kate, or at least they make eye contact. I was expecting her to PTSD the heck out. She didn't. And she flips out over the fact that Godzilla saw her. And I'm wondering, I'm hoping that they come back to that. Because I would like that to get unpacked a little bit. Especially with the pseudo-deity that they, the MonsterVerse likes to attribute 
to at least some of the Titans, Godzilla in particular, because she was quite affected by the fact that Godzilla saw her and then you know got this big close-up on his eye, which did make me think of Godzilla 98, but we've seen a few Japanese films that have done that as well. So it's not exclusively a G98 thing. But I was wondering, why is he here? Especially since, in terms of continuity... The last time we saw Godzilla, he was in San Francisco. So what's he doing here? Is he, you know, is he looking for another Titan or something, or is he? Did he just want a nice, quiet place to sleep? Because he did look a little cranky when he when he woke up, I have to say. But we have a Monarch helicopter that's flying around, and Tim is on it. And I thought the helicopter's got main character immunity because Tim is on it. But nope, nope. The pilot who runs this, Jimmy and I had a bit of a discussion about this. It gets clipped by Godzilla, and yeah, I get it. Godzilla's like 320 feet tall in the MonsterVerse. Actually, it's more like 350, something like that. But that is really low for a helicopter. Why are you flying that coach? Wait, Jimmy and I keep having this discussion. I mentioned in the Minus One episode that that was one of the rare instances where a pilot flying that close to a kaiju actually made sense. This is not one of them. I doubt it's because they got taken by surprise. So, or maybe that was the idea. I don't know, but I still thought the pilot looked a bit stupid in this. All right. And then we go back to 1955 and Keiko, K, that's what a lot of people call her, makes a really interesting point. She's saying Godzilla's alive could accelerate the Cold War because they're going to be like, if the biggest weapon we ever make couldn't kill the thing, we need to make a bigger one. And if we don't use it on Godzilla, we're going to use it on somebody, implying that they're going to use it on the Russians which makes sense given the time frame and also explains why in the other movies they would keep Godzilla secret. In my previous podcast life, I remember talking with somebody and he was saying, like, why would they keep them secret in the Japanese films? They don't do that. Well, here's why. My friend Ben Avery has been messaging me as he's been watching the show and he actually said that he thinks Monarch is actually making the MonsterVerse movies better. And I agree with him in a lot of ways. Whether or not it, whether or not you should have to have the television shows to make the movies better, I mean, I don't know. I, that's a discussion for another day, especially when you're dealing with interconnected shared universes like this. And then we go back to 2015 and... Old Shaw says nobody from the helicopter survived. I'm like, nobody, no death, my friend, because there's no way that we're going to get rid of Tim, a main character, that uneventfully. And then Kurt Russell, Mr. Lee Shaw, says he wants to help Godzilla. And I don't know, I am just tickled to death that Kurt Russell wants to help Godzilla. That just amuses me. But then, here's our, this was weird. As much as I like this episode and how much more it feels, uh, how much of an improvement it feels like compared to last week, compared to episode five, this cliffhanger just didn't quite work for me. They were going for an emotional cliffhanger, but it's just, it's just not resonating with me. But May confesses everything that she's doing, that she's working with Monarch and that she's living a secret life because she made enemies of the wrong people a few years ago, but now she wants to make up for it. She's like, I got a bunch of money. And then Kate just feels betrayed and says, I don't want your money. Go to hell and all of that sort of stuff because 
because Kate is a very angry person. And and this is after they the three of them broke away from Duval and Shaw because their goal is to find their dad, or well, it's not May's dad, but she's with them because she just wants out with Monarch, which is why she confessed. And that's how it ends. She confesses. Kate hates her, starts walking away. May's trying to make amends, which presumably is going to lead to an argument. And that, that really? Really? That's how you're going to end it? Really? <sighs> the heck show. The heck. Not your best cliffhanger. I'm not opposed to emotional cliffhangers. This one just didn't work for me. That's the one major misstep in this episode, other than my silly nitpicks, but this is the one major misstep. This cliffhanger doesn't work. I know. Compared to last week's episode, that's pretty minor. I get it. I get it. But the next episode, episode seven, judging by the episode title, looks to be May-centric because it's called, Will the Real May Please Stand Up? And I keep wanting to sing the Eminem song when I hear that. But here's something. Here's something. I'm kind of dreading the episode a little bit, guys. And I really hope I'm wrong. And it's because I see who the screenwriter is. And I'm not excited. It's Mariko Tamaki. You may not know that name, but you know at least one thing that she's done. And it was highly, highly controversial. She's a comic book writer, which makes sense because Matt Fraction is a comic book guy. He's one of the showrunners here. I'm not surprised that he's been getting some of his comic book friends to come on board to help him with this show. She wrote the infamous graphic novel, I Am Not Starfire. Yeah. Not inspiring confidence. A writer like her in what I'm assuming is going to be a very May-centric episode. I really hope I'm wrong. I really do hope I'm wrong. I want it to be good. I'm not saying that Miss Tamaki can't write anything good. I'm just saying doesn't have a great track record. So, I'll see you next week, and I'll let you know how it goes. To be continued.